This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 155. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lumrayasha, and it's that time once again where we cover and reflect on the best manga of the previous year in our grand slam of a manga in retrospect. Yes, we're looking back at last year in manga, the year 2020 in manga. 2020, not a super positive year for a lot of reasons, but... It did give us a lot of really good manga to help us get through it, and we are going to talk about and celebrate them on the show today. And this is coming out to you guys a little later than usual, but we have a lot to talk about, and I think you're going to really enjoy learning and hearing about what we enjoyed in manga last year. Oh yeah, we have we have so much to talk about. Uh, we'll try not to keep you guys too long because uh, originally the raw audio for this was about four hours, and I uh, managed to get our conversation to about three and a half ish. But I, I mean, when we record all this extra stuff in the beginning, it's going to be probably a four hour show. So a, a long episode, but I think we talk about a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, we go over all of our usual categories, uh, not to list all of them off here, but we go over like, you know, our favorite manga moments, our favorite fights in manga, uh, our favorite characters, chapters, uh, favorite new manga, uh, favorite currently running manga. And, you know, one of my favorite segments that uh, that we get to do near the end, uh, you know, the manga that we promised to read in the current year. Uh, I really like doing that. Uh, category in particular because I, I really like being able to tell our listeners all this all the all of our grand plans that we have uh I guess in this case for the rest of the year and I think we have some pretty cool ones uh but you'll have to wait until the end of the show um to get a listen to those um obviously big spoiler warning for uh, a lot of the series that we do talk about in this episode um so you know, any series that we do bring up and, you know, if you're not caught up on it, just assume that there will be spoilers. I know we don't really usually like, you know, harp on spoilers too much, like spoiler warnings too much on the show. But I just wanted to put that out there in case it wasn't obvious. But yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited for this. The, this is these are probably some of my favorite podcasts to do every year because I, I we don't. I guess besides like uh, our simulpub coverage, uh, we don't really get a chance to like talk about ongoing simulpubs as much. So this is kind of like the podcast for us to do that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing this episode and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, But one last thing before we get on to the rest of the episode, uh, speaking our best of manga episode. So uh, we recently got a new patron on our Patreon and, uh, you know, as is customary, if you sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, basically really at any tier, but like, you know, if you sign up for even as much as a dollar, uh, you know, we really appreciate your patronage and support so much that we'll shout you out on the show. And this patron in particular, uh, I really going to enjoy shouting out because I've been listening to their stuff as well. One of the hosts of the uh, Weird Science Manga and Anime Podcast, uh, Jim in particular, 
has signed up for our Patreon and even told me in DM specifically to listen to uh, this particular episode of the podcast because if you are a patron and you sign up for the $2 tier in particular, you would have already been able to listen to this at least like a week or two before we uploaded it now on our main feed. And, uh, you know, when when, uh, when Jim DM'd me that, I'm not going to lie, uh, I, that made me very happy because, uh, you know, I also want to apologize also for, um, for how late this episode has been. You know, like Lum mentioned at the top of the show, it is a little later than usual, and that's just because we've been kind of swamped with a lot of stuff and a whole bunch of reasons, basically. Like, I, I felt really good about posting it on a Patreon already, you know, early enough for all our patrons. And, you know, having Jim be like, oh, hey, I signed up for the Patreon just to listen to this. Like, I, uh, that really put a spring in my step. So thank you, Jim, for that. And I hope you enjoyed it. And so, yeah, and again, th- thank you to Jim in particular for signing up for our Patreon um, you know, go, go listen to the Weird Science Anime and Manga Podcast. I've really been enjoying their stuff lately. Uh, I guess c- kind of an early community shout-out as well. Uh, I've been really enjoying the stuff that uh, him and Luke from the uh, Heroes Note Podcast have been doing lately. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes for where you can find their stuff and maybe even find their Patreon as well. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's our shout-out for Jim. And again, if you want a shout-out on the show for even just signing up for our Patreon, again, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, like we say, it's the it's always the best way to support our show and really kind of help keep the lights on. And there's a ton of bonus content there that you will get to enjoy depending on what tier you sign up for. Uh, so yeah, again, thank you to anyone uh, for signing up and supporting us. But uh, yeah, that's going to be about it for that. I don't think we have anything else to talk about at the top of the show. This episode is already so long as it is, and I think we're just going to get right into our best of manga for the year of 2020. What what, what do you say, Lum? Yeah, all the best. Now it's time for the best manga of 2020! We have a lot to talk about because while 2020 was not a great year for a lot of reasons, in terms of manga and enjoying manga, it was quite a good year. There are many reasons in terms of both wider accessibility of titles, more licensors and publishers coming out bringing more titles out 2020 was a good time to be a manga fan very generally and a good sign of the growth of this industry oh yeah for sure and we enjoyed quite a lot of manga in 2020 and quite a lot of the developments in the manga world in 2020 and i think that brings us to our first best of category our favorite manga news stories of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'm okay with you starting off. I'm I'm kind of interested in uh in what you have. I don't. I have the feeling we we may have one or two of the same things. Maybe I'm just taking a guess, but I don't know. But we'll see. I think a lot of my stories that I really appreciated and find the most memorable this year were stories that were emphasizing just 
how much the manga industry is thriving right now. And I think no series is more representative of that than Demon Slayer and our constant reporting of its record-breaking sales culminating in our coverage of this year's Oricon Top Manga List where Demon Slayer sold over 80 million copies in sales in a single year. By far the most any single manga has ever sold in a single year since Oricon began tracking this. Almost double more than One Piece at its peak had sold in a single year. That was truly astonishing and showed that the manga industry is in such a healthy place that huge hits that can rival some of the established greats that for a long time people thought were untouchable. That potential is still there. Demon Slayer is so representative of that and it makes me hopeful and keen to see what the next big breakout sensation will be because we know now that that potential is there for something else to come along and completely surprise us in a way we never would have thought of. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, I just want to say, yeah, that was, that was definitely uh, one of my picks as well. Um, I don't really have much else to add on there though, other than it's, I still, I'm still kind of reeling from the fact that Demon Slayer is as popular as it is. Um, especially considering it was, it was originally that little jump start that could, you know, I, I think if, if you went back in time, back to 2016 and told our past selves like, Hey, this is going to be the biggest thing selling in the next four to five years. I, I don't think I would have believed it personally, or at the very least, I would have been very taken aback. But so it's, it's, it's really nice to see that something we originally talked about at the start of the podcast became as huge as it is. Yeah, no Demon Slayer fan, I think, even as much as they love the series, would have predicted it would be as phenomenal a success as it is. And kind of alongside the record-breaking manga sales, the fact that Demon Slayer Mugen Train has become the all-time number one Japanese film of all time. Oh, yeah. At the Japanese box office is incredible. And not only that, I mean, 2020 is a sparse year in terms of movies that were able to be released to actually. But the fact that Demon Slayer is the highest grossing animated film of 2020, one of the top five highest grossing movies of 2020, really speaks to the power of its popularity considering... Most of that revenue comes from a single country, just comes from Japan. It's just astonishing what a cultural phenomenon Demon Slayer is over there. But Demon Slayer and manga in Japan are not the only place where it's thriving. The manga industry here in North America is doing extremely well too, in spite of the pandemic. And we had several reports that we covered on the show this year where we dug into how big the manga industry really is, including the report where we discovered or where it really hit home that Wiz Media is the second biggest comics publisher in the game behind Scholastic with some of the highest selling franchises under their belt. But in general, the fact that every manga publisher, it seems, seems to be doing really well even during pandemic conditions and seems to be quite thriving is really something to be amazed at and happy about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very happy about that too, especially considering around the time where I think, uh, I think around the time when we when the pandemic was really starting to get going, kind of earlier in the year, and we were kind of reporting on news. I was genuinely afraid that like manga was going to take a really big hit, and so far that hasn't happened yet. On the contrary, I think several publishers have reported increases of sales during this time. And finally, I think I will mention that I was very excited about and continue to be excited about the launch of Mangamo and what it means in terms of a shift for accessibility of a broad variety of titles through a manga subscription service. Previously, we really only had Shonen Jump and Crunchyroll manga as these kind of subscription services where you could read a catalog of titles. But of course, those were limited by specific publishers. But with Mangamo, we have such a broad variety of titles as well as exclusive titles not available anywhere else. And the fact that they are able to offer such variety and they have really been doing well to increase what's available in their catalog and who they are partnering with and working with is really something, and I think they are offering a really great service. Of course, we talked about how buggy the app was at launch. It took a while for them to find a footing, and there's still improvements to be made to the app for sure. But I am really happy with a lot of the titles Mangamo has made available through the service, and just for the fact that it is a place where you can find like so many different titles, especially a huge bulk of Kadansh titles, including really long-running ones, just in one place for easy accessibility and for a fairly affordable subscription price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have Mangamo listed in my list as well. And uh, again, I mean, I, I think we we said our piece uh, on our last like Mangamo spotlight episode, which I I mean, I've also said I, I, I can't wait to do like another spotlight on their titles eventually because they have so many titles that we could talk about. And so many that like I still haven't even gotten to yet. But yeah, no, I was very excited when uh, when it was first announced that Magamo was kind of arriving on the scene. And I think since then, you know, like you said, we you know th- there are still some improvements that could that could be made. But I, I still think it's genuinely a really worthwhile service, uh, especially for the price they're asking for and like how much manga they have on their service as well. Like seriously, if you haven't checked it out yet, you really should. Mm-hmm, I agree. And those are my three, but kind of to extend upon the Mangamo thing, beyond Mangamo, we are seeing especially Kadansha vertical titles being available through a variety of different platforms for subscription readership. And I think, again, just that increase of accessibility of digital manga, especially a huge catalog of titles like the one Kadansha offers, is really, really great and uh, appreciable, I think, for manga fans in terms of, you know, being able to read, like, especially these long-running series just, you know, through a subscription. It's, it's just really great. I think manga as a hobby has become more affordable and accessible than ever before. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see over the next year or two, like, whether we'll see any other publishers pop up and maybe try to attempt their own services or even... Probably better yet, maybe license their titles out to uh, to other services such as Mangamo. Uh, I'd I'd like to maybe see if that happens personally, but uh, I, I there's 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 room for growth still. So 
I guess we'll have to see. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, in in terms of uh, in terms of some of my favorite manga news stories, uh, I kind of want to piggyback off of uh, talking about new services and kind of talk about uh, new publishers in particular because we had one or two new publishers pop up uh, over this past year, and uh, I I think my favorite of them is probably Starfruit Books. I definitely want to give them a shout out because uh, I've been very pleased with uh, with the titles they've been bringing out. Just something, just something about the stuff that Starfruit Books picks up in particular. Always, like it, it never, it never fails to like catch my interest. Like they really do pick up some neat stuff. That and along with like publishers like Kaiten Books as well, I would put up there as well. I just like seeing these new smaller publishers pop up because that means we'll get possibly slightly more niche titles as well, like stuff that you probably wouldn't see other really big publishers pick up and i think that's super valuable personally speaking mm-hmm. i definitely appreciate how many more new publishers sprang up this year and again in terms of diversity of titles we're getting more and more than ever and i think just just wonderful mm-hmm. and also kind of speaking on uh the uh of sales in the industry this one's kind of more broad, but like in in terms of the kind of stories we cover on the podcast, personally, I really enjoy like just covering the book scan list in particular, or just in general when we cover stuff like that in like the New York Times bestselling graphic books and manga list, just because it's it's really cool that we get to talk about like just w- what is selling well over here in North America and just in the West in, in particular. Uh, it, it is genuinely really fun just to kind of talk about like, you know, how well stuff like My Hero Academia does from month to month. And like, whenever we talk about these lists, seeing like what titles will pop up on the list, because obviously we have our usual suspects like that. And like, off the top of my head, like Berserk, Dragon Ball Super, you know, stuff like that. But then every once in a while, we'll get stuff like, you know, Haikyuu and Spy Family and Chainsaw Man, like... Some sometimes stuff that you don't really expect to see on the list or don't really expect to do like that well, but it is really nice to see uh, just just in terms of like what we cover on the podcast. Again, I know it's I know it's kind of a broad pick, but like I genuinely like covering those lists because I like I, I appreciate that we get a window into like you know what people are buying and what like kind of the most popular trends are in terms of like series and genre. Absolutely. I always enjoy covering them. And then I guess uh, the last thing I kind of want to mention isn't, it's not so much manga related, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Finally, the takedown of Kiss Anime happened this year. Ah, yes. Which, again, that's that's significant because like that site was up for almost a decade. And, <laughs> oh, you know, it, it just it just really felt like it just really felt like it could just like you just couldn't kill it. And as far as as far as I could tell, it seems like it it's pretty much gone. But I don't know. I mean, also with these with these like illegal sites, like, you know, if, if you take them out, most of the time they'll come back as something else. But I mean, like, again, Kiss Anime all, out of all of them was probably the most significant. Pro- I'm, I'm going to venture a guess probably like the, the most like visited of those sites in particular. So, you know. It's nice that that was finally taken down, and I'm, I'm hoping we see like a positive effect on like anime viewership online and all that kind of stuff because of it. But I think that was really about it for everything I wanted to bring up, unless 
there was anything else or we just want to move on to our next uh, category. Yeah, there were a lot of great news stories, but there were also so many that, you know, we would be here forever if we were to recount them all. So we will just point you back in the direction of our previous podcast where we, of course, discussed all of these in exhaustive detail. But something we also discussed in exhaustive detail Per usual, are licensing news and all the awesome new licenses that are coming out over here. And oh my gosh, I mean, we mentioned how many new publishers there are, but with all these new publishers, there are new more new licenses, especially as established publishers also just continue to license more and more. Oh yeah, like some some, some of the licenses. I don't know about you, but like. Some of the licenses I have on my list, like, I think could have, if we didn't have this separate category for licenses, like, some of these easily could have been, like, for, for me, the biggest manga news stories of the past year. Um, but here, I'm, I want you to go first again, because I, I have the feeling that we might share one or two choices of licenses. Sure. So... We are limiting ourselves to five, so there's more we could mention, and I also was considering what you might mention, so there are some I left off of mine, but I thought about it, and I think these are among the ones I'm most excited about. So these are not necessarily in the sequential order of how much I'm excited about them. I'm just going to go in alphabetical, I think. And starting off, Boys from the Ride by Gaku Keito. This one caught me off guard because I hadn't heard a whole lot about it before. But once I had, I looked into it. And very recently, there have been a ton of great articles about what makes it so special as an own voices manga about from a trans male about a trans boy exploring the world of fashion and self-expression through fashion it just sounds so wonderful and exciting and it is going to be translated by leo who is also a trans man and i'm so glad that there's like an authentic trans male perspective in the translation to get across the heart and nuances of the original writing of Gaku Keito. So I, I'm so excited for that. Like that sounds like it's going to be a release handled with a lot of care and just everything I've heard about that story just sounds really wonderful and I'm so excited to read it. I'm also excited for Takako Shimura's adult Yuri manga, even though we're adults, which sounds like a very complicated kind of relationship story with adult protagonists. And the Kakoshimura, I know, you know, some people are, are like, it's a love it or hate it with her sometimes because I know some people are like, you know, she does write stories with like this really meaningful representation, but there's still some things where people find frustrated by it. But I've heard a lot of really good things about this and what it explores. And I'm, I'm really excited to read it. I've also been excited to read for a long time, I Think Our Son is Gay by Okura. It's just a charming, cute story about, you know, a mom, she realizes her son is gay and she's just supportive, you know, behind the scenes. Like, you know, giving her son a little push of validation before he's like really, you know, ready to be out and open with her or anyone. Like she silently knows it is supportive of him and it just sounds so adorable and amazing and I, I can't wait to read it. 
Oh, yeah. Th- that wasn't on my list, but I-, I totally forgot that got announced this year. We had so many licenses come out this year. It's kind It's kind of wild. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I trepidatiously always look forward to Kabi Nagata's manga because they are such powerful reads. Like, because they emotionally, they are very relatable for me, but it's also heartbreaking this year. Struggle with her depression and her anxieties. And of course, in her next book, My Alcoholic Escape from Reality, she is suffering from alcoholism and records her experiences dealing with that. But I truly do enjoy and find her manga so special to read and meaningful. And I just pray for her to find happiness and be able to one day write, you know, a story that shows that, hey, she has finally found a sense of peace and stability in her life. But I think that she is able to, like, just recount her experiences and find some poignancy in them and what she's going through. And even if she has not really been able to, like, escape the depression she has been afflicted with, like, she comes to a lot of really powerful self-actualizations and realizations that I think have been helpful and relatable for so many people. So, you know, I am looking forward to reading this next edition of her story, even as much as at the same time I dreaded my heartaches for her and I just want her to be happy already. (laughs) Yeah, same. And then the final license I'm going to mention is one that I think is... Very special because of the way that I found out about it, and that's Our Colors by Gengar Tagame. Just a story about a gay boy finding kind of a companion mentorship in an older gay man. And this is, of course, you know, another broad appeal, like family-friendly manga by Tagami, but this one is directed a little more towards queer audiences than even My Better Husband was. And again, it was just so special to find out about this because on just like casually mentioned that this was happening in our interview and that just completely blew me away because that was like of course my first time hearing about it and I was like oh my gosh this is happening I'm so excited and that was really incredible that it, we kind of had that exclusive announcement on our show on our interview with her and it is a little strange to me that you know Pantheon has still not made like the official announcement yet but like it's also not necessarily a secret, which is why we were able to reveal it. Like mm. on was really cool with that. So I don't know like when they'll officially say, okay, here's the release date for our colors. But, you know, we know that they are working on it and it should be coming. And I don't know if it'll necessarily come next year. I, I think that was the plan. But again, they haven't like announced definitively when it is happening. But the fact that we know that it is happening by Pantheon, translated by Anne, is really exciting to me. And I'm really looking forward to it because obviously, you know, we loved my brother's husband on this show. I love the works of Tagami in general, both his family-friendly stuff and his more, you know, hardcore stuff. And this just looks super awesome. Another story that I think is going to, you know, really touch upon queer experiences in a really nice, sweet way. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I can't wait for uh, Gengoro Tagami to make me cry again. That's going to be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I still can't believe we, like, kind of broke that 
um, I'm waiting for like an outlet to like accidentally find our podcast to be like, huh, I can make a news story out of this or whatever. Uh, that'd be mm. fun. Yeah, I didn't know whether to like to write up something or to like to keep it just surprise for people who listen to the podcast, especially since, you know, I don't know when they're going to make the announcement announcement. Then, but like I said, it's not necessarily a secret that this is happening because they have let us announce it. So like when I was listening to that episode, I was like, are 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 you are you sure she didn't she she didn't say like hey it, edit that part out or whatever? No, I mean she told me things to edit out like after our conversation, and uh, this was one thing I was worried about, and this was not one of them. Mm, that is really interesting, but uh, it's just kind of interesting to me that it seems more like a, like a like an open secret almost. Uh, I mean it's it's coming, and that's all that matters. And I, I agree. I especially can't wait to read it and uh, talk about it on the show. Whenever it comes out, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's a that, that's a really solid list of stuff to look forward to. Uh, su- surprisingly, I know you kind of said it earlier. You were kind of like you kind of had a pretty good idea of what I was going to include, but still nothing that I included. And I I feel kind of bad that I didn't include any of those because some of those, if it weren't for like all the like other bigger things that came out this year, I think those would have been on my list, honestly. But yeah. Uh, so we might as well just get to my choices here. And uh, the first one, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't mention because I think it's I'm going to say it's not the biggest license. I'll save that one for a little uh, for a little later. But uh, I'd say this is probably like I'm going to argue this was like the second biggest uh, license title to be announced over the past year. And that's Shaman King from Kodansha. Look, it, it, this is one of those things where, like, you know, I, obviously, I've I've never read the original Shaman King. I've always been in that camp where it's like, like, I've, I've always been interested in reading Shaman King, right? And, you know, I've purposely kind of kept from reading it because I knew about the Kanzenban version with all the new material included and everything, including the new ending. And now, now we have that. Not only was it licensed, but, like, you, you can just read all of Shaman King on Comixology right now, and that is... That's kind of amazing to me, um, and also even more amazing that we're that we're gonna be getting these in print. Which I'm like, I, I I've thought about reading on Comixology, but I also I'm also deciding whether I want to wait for the print releases, just because I wonder if the like the translation for the print release is gonna be any different from like what's on Comixology and that kind of stuff. I don't know. We'll have to see. But anyway, yeah. I mean, in conclusion. I'm very excited that we got Shaman King and that we finally got the Kanzenban version, especially in time for the new anime. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm looking forward to really digging into Shaman King because there's so much to dig into, like way more than I thought there was, honestly. Like, honestly, before like meeting Maxi, I never knew about all these like spinoffs and everything. And now I have those to look forward to as well. Uh, but yeah, next up, I also really want to mention uh, the fact that we're getting more Lupin the Third manga. Uh, straight from Monkey Punch, what with uh, Seven Seas this next uh, November coming out with their collection of uh, of different Lupin the Third stories in dedication to the passing of Monkey Punch. Uh, again, this this was something that like I've been wanting to read for the longest time. You know, it's no secret that we're both fans of Lupin on this show, and uh, this is something that like I'm I'm very familiar with Lupin, but like I've never like read any of the manga, so like. Uh, this will be something that uh, I'm definitely looking forward to. Uh, just, just, just another thing that like I'm glad that we'll have available again 
since obviously the original Tokyo Pop editions of the manga are very much out of print and are very hard to find from what I can tell. Just kind of going down the line here with more classic manga, uh, something else that I'm super, super excited for that I'm kind of surprised that we're getting is uh, Himitsu Sentai Go Ranger uh, from Shotaro Ishinomori and Seven Seas. Uh, again, I mentioned it on the podcast. We talked about it, but like, like it really seemed like Seven Seas was not giving up on their classic manga, but like it really seemed like, oh, this isn't really doing as well as they thought it would. So like, who knows if we're going to get any more titles like this. And then they surprised us. And not only are we getting more classic manga, but we're getting like tokusatsu manga. Um, Again, aside from like the very little that we have like digitally available on like comiXology with like the common writer manga and everything. Like I, I don't think we have anything like this, like in print. So like, you know, just the fact that Seven Seas is coming out with one of the very first tokusatsu manga in print and this nice hardcover edition uh, all in one book, that's going to be really fun. Again, I've kind of dabbled in tokusatsu. I've like here and there, but I've never read any of the, the original manga that these properties are based on. So like, again, it's just something to be excited for. And I'm especially really happy for all the toku fans out there. I think they've been uh, they've been really eating well for the past year. And then um, next one's kind of a cheat, but like, uh, I, I just have to put it out there. I I know it was inevitable, but I am really excited that Viz is bringing out more JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I really enjoyed the part five anime more so than I thought I would, honestly, uh, just because before I'd heard a lot of mixed things about that part. But uh, I enjoyed it and I'm I'm looking forward to even more JoJo manga uh, once that starts coming out. But I personally think the biggest licensed title for all of 2020 was Fist of the North Star. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to argue that anything bigger than Fist of the North Star was licensed last year. <laughs> Especially, well, I guess uh, Shaman King is technically longer in terms of volumes. But yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, long, long awaited title. Oh, yeah. Like, I've, I, I know people have been asking for this. Uh, I know I've been wanting this. Like a lot of people really wanted this, and this this was something that like nobody thought we were gonna get. And I'm just I'm so excited to actually buy a volume of Fist of the North Star uh, that I won't have to hunt down you know from third party sellers for like more than a hundred dollars or something, something some big stupid price like that. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, what else can I say about it? it's Fist of the North Star? It's super influential so influential that I, I feel like I remember when I saw it was first announced, a lot of people thought, hey, th- this looks like JoJo. Why does it look like JoJo? Uh, so I'm sure we're going to get a lot of people like that who think it's like a JoJo ripoff or whatever. But uh, nonetheless, it's still, it is the hugest license, I think, from last year. Or at least the one like people thought was like the most impossible, and now we're getting it. Like, this goes to show you never say never. Like mm-hmm. I, 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 I believe that dreams can come true after, <laughs> a, after this was announced. Um, but yeah, it, it's like I said earlier, right? Like I, I think this alone would have been would have been a part of my biggest like manga news stories of twenty twenty earlier. Absolutely. I mean, those are all ones I'm excited for as well. I mean, I have been a fan for a lot of those too, 
And yeah, it's been a really great year in terms of licensing announcements, like a oh, lot yeah. of newer stuff to look forward to, a lot of classics being licensed for the first time or relicensed to look forward to. Like it's really something. Again, we're in a really good place now in the North American manga market in terms of stuff that's getting brought over here. Oh, yeah, we we are feasting. <laughs> but uh, we should move on to our favorite new North American manga releases of 2020. And I think I could just go ahead first because, unfortunately, I don't always really buy a lot of new releases. And the only new release that I have to speak of is one that I didn't even buy myself. It's one that I got as a Christmas gift from from my lovely mother, and I love her. She 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 knows what I like. Um, <laughs> she she got me the the first volume of the hardcover omnibus edition of Soul Eater from Square Enix. Mm, yeah, which I, I believe came out this year, or at the very least. Uh, yeah, like, it did. It did. Okay, good, good. I mean, Square Enix just started releasing their titles this year, really. Yeah, and when they announced that they were doing their own titles, and this was one of them, I was very excited because Soul, uh, Soul Eater is one of those things that like, I'm super nostalgic for. Like, I've seen the anime for it so many times at this point. <laughs> uh, I remember watching. I remember watching Soul Eater like when fan subs were still like pretty active, like before streaming was really a thing. I would literally download episodes of Soul Eater and put them on my iPod Nano and watch them like during class or whatever when I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> so so I was pretty obsessed with it for a while. Um, but weirdly, I've never read it um, just because I never really got around to it. And uh, I'm like, obviously, this was already available. But like the fact that we're getting like hardcover editions of it in nice hardcover omnibus editions uh, really kind of made me decide to pull the trigger on it and start collecting it. And uh, I've, I've kind of flipped through it a few times. It kind of reminds me of what Viz is doing for like their hardcover editions of Full Metal Alchemist right now. I, I feel like the paper is of like that same glossy quality that I really like. And just in general, it's also one of those things where like it, it, it's got glossy paper, hardcover, keeps at least most of the color pages as far as I could tell. Like this is a really nice premium release and uh, I can't wait to eventually collect every volume and start reading the series that way which by the way uh soul eater is definitely a um let's let's call that a stay tuned for manga mavericks that's gonna have its own episode at some point i don't know when but eventually well i'd love to yeah yeah i'm a, a big fan of the manga as well like i kept up with it for a good half of its run i think after oh, wow. I, you know i really got into it and yeah i really love the direction the manga takes uh opposing it and like the deeper exploration of the teams okabu does which you know i think the anime was also pretty solid through and through but i just really like how the character arcs are developed in the manga the direction that story goes and like there are definitely moments in the manga that I wish so that make me wish Soul Eater had gotten a Brotherhood style readaptation. <laughs> because I mean, hey, ne never say never. Yeah, never say never. I mean, Fire Force I think is successful. So I mean, if that has revitalized any interest in maybe redoing Soul Eater, I'd be all for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it sounds like it's one of those things where it's like. The anime was good, but the manga is just that much better. I think so. I think one thing I'll say about the Soul Eater anime is that I like it more than the first FMA anime. 
Which of all, also took liberties with the ending. But I also respect the first FMA anime and what it was doing in terms of its uh, themes and political commentary. It's just like in terms of actually enjoying the beats of the story. I don't like it as much towards the end. But with Soul Eater, like, I never really felt that. I felt like I was enjoying the beats of that anime through and through. But it's just the manga, the direction it takes, and the way certain character arcs develop, I just think is just so much stronger. Particularly, you know, with Medusa and Cronus stuff. Uh, and a lot of the things involving, like, the antagonist in the series especially. And the manga I really, really like. Okay, yeah, this definitely sounds like we need to do an episode on it at some mm-hmm. point. Um, but here, I'm I'm sure you probably have more to talk about than I do. Oh, okay. Yeah, I made a uh, list for myself, a top five. And I do read it quite a bit, but I still am down on myself for not getting to as much as I could have. Because in terms of accessibility, like... We, Lord, and I, we've been reviewing stuff for all comic, so we've been getting review copies, so there is has been a great opportunity to check out a lot more titles, but just because of time problems, I just was not able to get to as much as I'd like, and there are also other stuff that, you know, we weren't getting review copies of, but, like, we're still on my radar that I wanted to check out that I still wasn't able to get around to, and I made, like, a short list of everything that I want to check out, and... Uh, it's like maybe 30 titles that I, I wanted to check out from this year still that I didn't get to. But even so, there was still, you know, quite as many titles that I did check out that I can talk about. And, you know, unfortunately, we can only mention what we do read on these things. Because uh, if I had read Our Dreams of Dusk last year, that would have been on my favorites of last year, but I didn't get to it until this year. So it's like, you know, eventually I will get to these two and maybe we'll talk about them and give them their due on the show. And that's just to let you all know that, yeah, if you don't hear me mention something, like, chances are it was on my radar, but I just wasn't able to get to it in time, even though I really, really wanted to. But first, I'm going to just start off with some honorable mentions that aren't a part of my top five, just because, you know, I read them before and knew I would like them. And those being, of course, the two Runko Takashi series that were re-released this year, Maison Koku and Mermaid Saga. Like, obviously, I love Runko Takashi's manga. These new editions are beautiful books with gorgeous color pages, inserts, and, you know, really great uh, covers and paper quality and beautifully done and, you know, lovingly uh, done translations, you know. I know that these were done with care by people who really love these series. It's just so wonderful to get these back in print. So obviously I was going to love these <laughs> re-editions, <laughs> but, you know, because I knew I was going to love these, I kind of want to give spotlight to some other titles. But I also will mention that same vein, Blue Flag, obviously I think is, you know, one of my favorite manga, uh, and I am so... Happy with the volume releases by Biz, especially because, again, I know it's done by a team that really cares about it. Ray as editor, Ace as letterer, like, I know they have such great passion for the series, and they've done a great job with their releases. But it is also a series that, you know, I've read before through Manga Plus, and, like, I love the volume releases, but again, I want to spot, like, some new things that really surprised me. So I'm going to start off with something that did truly really surprise me because I didn't think that I'd be, 
mentioning it, really, if you would ask me at the beginning of the year. And that's a witch's printing office. And the story which is printing office is that's basically uh, the main character, Mika, you know, she's is a kind to this fantasy world where there really isn't, you know, a big book culture in this world. And she's a book otaku. I mean, she's like specifically like a kind of manga otaku, but, you know, she loves books and publishing and uh, holding conventions and all of that. And she ends up creating a convention for wizards and mages to sell their new spells and scrolls and fan fiction even called Magicette. And it just grows into like this big biannual event that attracts visitors from all over, including the demon lord herself makes a visit. <laughs> and it's she's very genial and polite and it's very amusing. Uh, and I just love like it's a it's a total satire parody of otaku culture of the publishing industry especially the manga industry like there is an entire chapter where they visit a parody of shueisha's offices specifically the jump editorial offices and like the head of the office is like it's a stand-in for a parody of just a jump editor or a representation of jump itself and that mindset of like competitive quality of storytelling. And she like is chewing out a new uh, mage because their spell is derivative and is just copying things that have been done before. It's like totally like what a manga editor and like something like Bakuman would be chewing out an artist for creating and then it ends like with her picking Mika's brain and then stealing the ideas to do a convention and make like uh their own basically version of jump fest in this world and so there's like a rival convention to magic it's just stuff like that that's like really funny it's just I like the core of the series is that just Mika's love of books and helping people connect others through creating this event that brings people together and bond over their share love of stories and creating spells and creating really art in general. Like it's just really, really uh, fun and charming. And the characters are all very amusing. Like Mika, you know, is a complete, like her original goal of starting Magic is to find a spell to get her home. And then she completely forgets, she gets so caught up in creating like her own uh, publishing house and then running Magic Hat that she like totally forgets about this. Even when she meets someone also from, you know, the real world, like who has also been Isekai'd in, like they just end up creating a used bookshop and then like are like yes now we can make so much money from the successful partnership between my publishing house and your uh bookshop and they like completely forget about their right goal about going home it's just very amusing like she thought she makes friends with like an ornery old dragon and then again the demon lord like it's just such a charming series. I've been enjoying it more and more as I read it. I think it's like truly a surprise because, you know, I was so I was kind of lukewarm in the first volume. But as I keep reading more and more volumes, the more and more I really have come to truly, truly get into and appreciate this series. And I have so much fun with it. Yeah, that does sound pretty good, actually. Mm hmm. My next uh, two books are actually stuff I read super recently, but were like so like emotionally moving that I was like, dang, they really saved some of the best books for the end of the year, some publishers. And the first one of these is Sonic at the End of the World, which is basically 
a post-apocalyptic story in which the, you know, iconic horror character is Sadako from The Ring. Her tape is played by two little kids in this world. And of course, they don't know, like, the story of Sadako or her curse or who she is, really. They're just really excited to meet her as, like, another human being they can uh, interact with in this world because they've been alone so long. And they become, like, fast friends with her, even though she just wants to, like, curse other people. And then eventually, you know, they go out in search of other people. And I just like how this manga is, like, super, like, empathetic to the character of Sadako and humanizing. Because, you know, the origin of Sadako as a character is that is very tragic. Like, she was betrayed, abused, murdered, and feared by the world. And, like, in this world, like, even when people find out, like, what she really is, they aren't afraid of her. They're really accepting of her. And they even embrace, like, the her curse. Like, in this world, like, she actually ends up being able to use her powers to, like, help people kind of live out dreams they had but had kind of given up on and find peace in life before they pass away. And it's kind of a moving story because Sadako herself is, like, you know, thinking, oh, like, she has her own existential crisis of, hey, if I get rid of the last people in this world, like, will I even continue to exist? But beyond even that, she does grow to care about some of the people she encounters, like the old woman who has lost her daughter, who is also an you know, old actress who is kind of lamenting on her youth and her desire to perform again and just have to reforge connections again. And as well as, of course, the little kids who you know, truly love and accept her, see her as a friend, and don't mind her scary appearance. And even when, again, they find out how her story ends and how their lives are going to end, like, they still are accepting of her. And they'll say, like, hey, you know, I've enjoyed my time with you. I'm ready to give you what I want. And then Sadako is like, you know, in my videotape, I can record our week together so you can be there together forever with me and it's just kind of like a sweet end like that these characters end up being able to live on and immortalized in Sadako's tape and that she did also truly care about these girls that she you know I truly come to accept her so I, I just really like it when people reclaim and reinterpret like you know, horror characters or fictional characters, especially villainous characters, and, like, find a way to see the humanity in their stories and give them a kind of closure to their stories that, like, other, that maybe more canonized media don't generally give them. So I, I really was really blown away and surprised by how much this one touched me. And I feel the same about the next title I want to talk about, My Book and Marco, in which this is a story... That is about, you know, dealing with regret and grief because the protagonist, her best friend, the story starts with her finding out she's committed suicide. And she just thinks about, like, how she couldn't help her friend while she was alive. Like, she had seen, like, how she had been abused all her life, mistreated by her family, by other people around her. And she just wants to send her off. Like, she steals her ashes away from her shitty, abusive dad and, like, goes off to, like, this cape where she wants to spread her ashes that she knew that 
her friend Marco always wanted to visit. But, you know, this story is just entirely about her reflecting on her memories of Marco and just thinking about all the moments in which, like, she had tried to help her, but in which she just couldn't help her escape from a situation. It's just a tragedy of her life that she never could escape the horrible situation she was in and then just became numb to the pain at some point and just accepted that she was broken, quote-unquote. Like, that it was just easier for her to think that she was undeserving of happiness and that her life would always be unhappy. But, like, the one thing that she would cling on to in her life was the fact that her best friend, you know, the protagonist, you know, you know, would get mad and would care for her. And that was, like, the one thing that was keeping her going in life. And it's just this tragic story of, like, you know, this woman just reflecting on, like, how much she loved her friend and how much she is so distraught she couldn't do anything for her. Like, she herself, like, her relationship with Marco was something that was so meaningful and important to her, was keeping her going in her own life. And then, you know, she, too, tries to commit suicide, but, you know, it fortunately doesn't work. And then, you know, she's just comes to this realization, you know, also encouraged by someone else who was also in a situation recently where he was trying to commit suicide, that, you know, sometimes the best way to do right by the people you loved is to, you know, just keep living and take care of those memories you have of them by and also doing that by taking care of yourself and living your, your life to your happiness in honor of them. It's just such a really powerful story. And this book also came with a one-shot by the author that was also kind of a reflection of these same themes about, like, a ex-mafia man who quit the business after, like, just coming to the realization that, you know, he was just murdering people and he didn't even understand why he was doing it anymore. And he just didn't want to live that life anymore. And he didn't he doesn't think necessarily that he can have a chance at a second life of a redeemed or formed life, but he just tried to escape that life. And he encounters like a Native American kid who has also just come from a really poor background where, of course, having to deal with so much discrimination in his life, but also just a situation uh, where... He just doesn't have a whole lot of opportunities or just a whole lot of hope in his living situation. But like he is encouraged by the old mafia man that, you know, it's not too late for him to turn his life around. And similarly, the mafia man comes to his own realization that he can turn his life around. Like he saves the life of this kid when his like old mafia gangmates come to track him down and this is also tragic because one of the people who tracks him down is his own son who he has an estranged relationship with and he ends up having to kill his own son in order to save the life of the native american kid but basically the story just ends with like you know these people escaping what were their past lives and just the hopefulness of moving forward and creating a newer better one And I think this story just touches upon another thing that, you know, is a common theme to the main story of My Broken Marco, which is just like the meaning, like a single positive relationship, you know, just uh, just a single act of kindness or just being there for someone, how much that can be so important and beneficial and life changing for someone. 
And it really just was very moving to me, just this book and the story. So I had to mention it for sure. No, that that sounds that sounds amazing. I, I you know, I agree. I, I really I really like manga that touches on like the effect that people have on other people mm-hmm. and like, you know, how relationships can affect people as well. So like, yeah, this is this is definitely on my to read list at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two is one I think I was I was looking for for so long going into the year and I was not disappointed when I read it. And that was Love Me for Who I Am, which of course we covered on the show. It's just a wonderful story featuring a non-binary protagonist that is just so empathetically sincere in examining queer identity and exploring different forms of how different characters interpret and express being cute in a way that is often perceived as traditionally feminine, but through these characters, we are seeing different reflections of, you know, how identity can be presented. Because we have in this maid cafe, we have like a non-binary character in Mogamo, but we also have, you know, a gay man in Suzu. We have people who are trans women. We have a guy who's just straight but likes cross-dressing, but they all are united in like their share love of presenting in this very specific way of cute and just the different ways in which they explore and express their gender identities through the way they dress and they present and they see and and they claim this idea of cuteness for themselves but also the series does explore like conflict within the LGBT community and the difficulties of people at different ends of the community trying to understand each other while trying to understand their own identities and they're being comfortable with that. And I think it was such a really great examination of those ideas of gender identity and expression in a way that really appealed to me. And I know that this manga did disappoint some people who, you know, don't really present or they don't really care for necessarily the moe aesthetic of love me for who I am and would are kind of looking for something else in terms of a manga that explores non-binary and queer identities. But I, I do think that the way the manga approaches it is very valid. Uh, and for me, I found it very relatable, just the ideas that they talk about, even though I myself don't, you know, present very uh, cute, even as a non-binary person. And I don't necessarily ever plan to like, I, I just like the characters' conversations about how they look at their own gender, how they look at their own sexuality, how they want to be seen and to be treated by others and be respected, and like how they all can be united in the same kind of aesthetic sense, despite representing different communities. And I really think that it explores some very real powerful emotions even in spite of like some of the moly aesthetics a lot of people are trepidatious of. So for me, like this was a manga that really did like satisfy me and truly moved me and I, I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow it. Oh yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed uh from what I read of the first volume as well. So I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to like reading more of it at some point. Mm-hmm. And my number one I think is probably the hugest 
release of this year, I think, in terms of something being so long awaited and just so, so important in the manga world in terms of its historical significance, its cultural significance. And that, of course, is The Rose of Versailles, which, you know, is a classic for a reason. And the hardcover books by Udon are gorgeous. They are just so beautiful. In my review of it, I, I wrote just extensively about the book itself and how well made it was because it's just that gorgeous. But obviously the story of Rose Versailles too, you know, it's a classic for a reason in terms of, you know, it's a very a fraught story in terms of like all the drama went in, but it just has such an iconic protagonist in Oscar and Marie Antoinette. It really explores, I mean, it, it is dated in some respects, but the still the way that Oscar, through Oscar ideas of gender and sexuality are explored. I mean, Rosalie, God bless that poor queer girl. I'm very disappointed in the destination of, you know, who she settles for at the end of the story. But like, man, I, her, her, it's her questioning and considering like her feelings for Oscar in the book are really, really great. And she's just a great character in general. But like there, one of the fun things also about reading the manga of this is, you know, after having seen the anime, is just like comparing how different the presentation of the story is. Like, because in the manga, like the focus at first is clearly on Marie Antoinette before it finally shifts to Oscar, whereas the anime, it's like Oscar from the start because I think they knew like who what the breakout star really was and who eventually truly became the protagonist of that story. But still, reading from the manga and, like, seeing the story, like, start out from Mario Antoinette's perspective, it does give me, like, a different perspective on her character that, honestly, I think I understand her a little more deeply uh, now compared to, you know... I, I rewatched the anime, well, after a little bit after reading the uh, manga, and I was like, huh, I think that Marie Antoinette as a character is more dynamic and interesting, because, like, there's, she just has such a great funny side in the manga. She's, like, very playful and kind of like a, a trickster, and I really enjoy that a lot. And... I enjoy the humor that Ryoko Ikeda has. That's something missing from the anime. Like, Ryoko Ikeda has just such a <laughs> funny, goofy sense of humor. And sometimes the characters have, like, Peanuts-esque kind of goofy expressions. <laughs> and I just love how she's able to mix, like, some really sincere drama and, like, beautiful, beautiful illustrations and drawings with like really goofy silly stuff and uh, it's just very wonderful and i mean there are some things about oversized are dated in terms of its examination of class and also it's kind of you know romanticization of royalty and i i when my review of that i did kind of go into like some of the aspects of that I don't think work in the way I think Akeda maybe had thought of. But overall, like I just have so much fun reading the Rose of Versailles as a manga because obviously the characters are so iconic. The story is so gripping and I think there's just an added sense of dynamism in the original manga that is lacking in the more serious anime adaptation. So I I truly I was excited for this for so long, and it was such a long road for this book to come out. But I think it was so worth the wait. It is truly a manga classic for a good reason. 
I adored reading it, and I'm looking forward to reading the final couple of volumes when they come out. Well, I am very happy for you that uh, that this came out because I, I I remember how long it's I, I know how long it's been for this to come out and like how many translators this one series has been through uh, just I on mean, its just own. Two, I mean Mari and Jocelyn. But see, see, I thought it was more than that. No, it's just Mari for the first uh, half, Jocelyn for the second half. Okay, I thought it was more. No, but I mean, I've been excited ever since we interviewed Mari last year and talked about, you know, what work went into the translation and localization of Rosewater's Eyes, like the research that went into it, like the effort to kind of be accurate to the setting in terms of uh, dialects, phrases that are used. And I think that's reflected in the translation very well. And some of the French that does get retained in the English uh, edition and then the way certain characters speak, like the voices of characters are so distinct, like that keeps the book brimming with personality. Like it's a really excellently done translation. And obviously, you know, Erica is theater of it. I know that she was, she's very passionate about the series and this project too. So, I mean, this has done as a great labor of love by the people who worked on it. And, you know, it took a long time to come out, but I do think that, the reward of this series being out was worth it because it is really well done. But those were my favorite new North American releases. But I did also want to address some of our favorite ongoing releases. Did you have uh, any series you want to mention in this section? Um, no. Um, unfortunately, I just uh, I just don't really typically buy a lot of like current releases. I guess so. I mean, you you can go ahead with yours though if you want. Sure, I'll try and do these quickly since these are series that, in large part, we have talked about on the show. I would just put these on my list, but because I have not technically gotten around to the final, final volumes, I'm just going to leave them as honorable mentions. But obviously, Bloom Into You and Silver Spoon finished their runs uh, last year, and those are some of my favorite series ever. And I read the penultimate volumes of those. And obviously, they just stay the course of being excellent. And these are series we're going to talk about more extensively in the future oh, this yeah. year. Uh, hopefully, if things are going according to plan. So, you know, I'll save my thoughts for those. But I mean, I think both of those are, you know, some of my favorite series uh, of all time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was very happy with uh, their penultimate volumes. And I, I really... Uh, do intend to get around to their conclusions very soon. But as for like stuff that are is going to make my top five, again, I'm going to go a little fast here. Uh, but, you know, Beastars, it's been staying the course, you know, continuing to love the series. It's been really fun getting into the post-anime stuff and, you know, the deepening mystery of uh, Who Killed Tem. So I have been continuing to enjoy reading Beastars. Like, it is an excellent comic. And the series ended, you know, in Japan this year. So I've heard some mixed things about the ultimate destination in Beastars. But overall, you know, I'm still enjoying the series where I'm at. And then Blank Canvas is a series we reviewed on the show. The last couple of volumes came out on this year. Obviously, I love Akiko Akashimura. Her personal artist journey is one that I found very resonant and relatable to my own experiences as someone who went to art school 
and, you know, is working in artistic professions and just in general, Ikashima's journey is really hilarious and moving emotional. It, it runs a gamut of feelings and it is one of my favorites as well as, as all her works. Kazusan Yamada came out this year and it was just so great to, you know, see the adventures of Kaze and Yamada in college and just see them, you know, kind of on their own as adults, still trying to make their relationship work and still working through some communication problems, but also, you know, now adopting some more uh, adult responsibilities and growing their friend circles and interests. I, I just like seeing just their growth continue, both as individuals and as a couple. And I'm looking forward to the second volume. I'm glad that it came out in Japan toward the end of the year. So hopefully we'll get it uh, this year. Crossing my fingers. And then Skullface Bookstore Honda-san is just such a wonderful examination of what it's like to run in a bookstore as well as the manga industry, publication industry in general. So I enjoyed every volume of it. It was always a lot of fun. Uh, Honda's sense of humor is really great, as are their illustrations. Like even the fourth volume where it's like Honda has left the bookstore at that point and she has to struggle figuring out what she's going to write about. And But she goes in interesting directions to learn about the world of like ebook publishers and the work they do and how they run their offices. And then they visit overseas uh, into... Uh, Taiwan seeing like oh he had here's how they localize manga and that was really all interesting to learn about so it's very educational and hilarious uh read that I really enjoyed every volume of and of course Yurusiatsura just continued to be great in terms of the volumes that came out last year we got introduced to so many great characters and for the first time in English we finally get Minosuke chapters at long long last it's been like Oh my god, 20, no, a 30 year road to finally getting to this material past where, well, it's been a 20 year road to getting to material past where it was originally published, but a 30 year road to getting to the character of Ryunosuke in English. Wow. And finally, like, with that introduction, like, the cast is truly complete. Like, we get into, like, what is really the prime of Yurisayatsura in terms of, like, the volumes that are set to come out. And I'm super looking forward to Volume 9, which will contain, like, one of my favorite storylines, the Miss Tomobiki Contest. But, yeah, man, I'm I'm so happy this has continued with their releases of Yurisayatsura. And we are really, like, we got so many of the great stories that came out in the volumes last year, including the early Ryunosuke stuff. And now we're really going to get into what I think is like kind of the prime stretch of your Seatsura. So I'm super looking forward to that this year. And yeah, those are just a select few of my favorite ongoing favorites. And again, there's so many manga that come out in North America. There are hundreds of titles. Literally, uh, again, there are my short list of titles that I have been reading and I still need to read is <laughs> extensive. But, you know, those are just some of my favorites that I did get around to and read last year that, you know, really, you know, I think were great bright spots in, you know, kind of a difficult year, which is kind of what you kind of go for with manga as like escapist entertainment. 
Ain't that the truth? Um, but yeah, I think we're pretty much done talking about like manga releases in general. And uh, I think it's time to start talking about all the stuff we've been reading over the year. I think so, too. And I guess our first category is favorite manga art of 2020. So our favorite art in ongoing manga series. Yeah, um, I think this is this is kind of a newer category, I think, we're introducing. I mean, I know we've we've kind of talked about like I think in past episodes we've had like like favorite pages or favorite like double spread and stuff, but I think uh I think this category will be good because um I don't know about you, but when it came to when it comes to my picks in particular, like I think um I, I think we're gonna generally keep this category pretty broad. Like I think this'll be the space where we could talk about like favorite moments where like the art kind of like accentuates the moment or the uh, like composition, favorite just favorite pages in general, uh just all that kind of stuff, uh essentially. But yeah, is it okay if I go with my stuff first? Absolutely. Yeah, so um Again, I think one of the best things about keeping this category kind of broad is that I am going to take advantage of that and just talk about, at least mention like two series, like out of everything that I read over the past year, like the two series that I think had the most consistently highest quality art. And uh, the first of which I just want to mention is uh, Phantom Seer. Mm. Like seriously, I think, I don't know, this, this might sound... This might not sound like the highest praise to some people, but I, I genuinely do think that when it comes to Phantom Seer in particular, like I'm going to say about 80% of my enjoyment comes from Kenta Matsura's art. Just in general, like his character designs really remind me of um, like they, they feel very akin to like Kohei Horikoshi's a little bit like they're not entirely the same, but I feel like some characters have very like similar features. I don't know. I'm, I'm that that might be just me, but like th th that's like the best comparison I can make when it comes to his art in particular, and just in general. Like I, I know we've talked about it on the podcast, and we definitely mentioned it on our uh, on our Shonen Jump retrospective on our Patreon uh, at Patreon.com/slash/MangaMavericks. But uh, like the thing that I like about Phantom Seer the most, besides the art, is how like the art accentuates like the creepier, more nightmare fueled moments like the series i mentioned before really scratches that like sort of horror thriller ish like kind of itch that i think is missing from jump right now like there's so many really great like page turners and reveals when it comes to this series uh like specific images that come to mind are uh i think i've mentioned um when iori and uh and the gang kind of like go into like this mirror world and Yori kind of like, you know, looks into the mirror and like you, you just get this image of like Yori's reflection in the mirror, like significantly way creepier, like, I don't know, some, something out of like a creepy pasta or something. I don't know. It's it's really it's really terrifying. You know, other moments also include like uh, when they were fighting Senju Doji. I think there's some really deliciously horrific stuff in that <laughs> uh especially when it comes to like uh when when they found that one girl and you know all the hands start like coming out of her mouth but before that like her head just stretches as, as all these hands come out of her and like wrap around her and crush her to death like it's it's stuff like that that i think i 
I think is like the reason I'm still reading Phantom Seer. I mean, you know, there's there's other stuff to like about it. I'm not saying that's like the only reason I like Phantom Seer because I also like the characters as well. And like I've mentioned, I also really like the dynamic between Iori and Ibetsu. And I'm really interested in seeing like how that develops. But like, man, like the, the art for Phantom Seer, again, really does lend to some really horrific shit from time to time. Like it's... I don't I don't know if it's like the creepiest thing I've ever read, but like in terms of this past year, it's there's some real like scary stuff in here sometimes. And I really like like I, re- I really enjoy it personally. Um, and then um, I guess the, the only other series I really want to mention that I think probably had like the best art this year. And this might not be a surprise because this person very rarely has any competition. And that's uh, Yusuke Murata's version of One Punch Man. Mm-hmm. I I just caught up to One Punch Man pretty recently, and um, you know, just in general, like again, in terms of like consistently high quality art with a lot of really great details and flourishes, I think Yusuke Murata knocks it out of the park. Like I could go on all day about like how much I really enjoy his art and like how like cinematic it feels almost. Like, I think some of the stuff I really enjoyed specifically is uh, during Tornado's fight with Psychos, uh, like, after she fuses with uh, uh, Orochi, and specifically around the point where, like, she blasts the giant laser at Tornado and, like, cuts, like, the top part of the Earth or whatever. Like, some some of the stuff that happens around there is, like, super amazing, and I think just it, it does a really good job of like setting the scale for how much destruction that she is able to cause now that she's acquired this power. And I, I think that was like one of my favorite like holy shit moments uh, from from the past year. Uh, it, it really it really got me excited to see like how this battle is eventually going to end. And then um, I think one other page I really wanted to highlight was. Uh, it's around the part when Saitama and Flashy Flash are like are, are like riding around in the mines or whatever, and uh, I really like the part where uh, where is it? It's um, th- the specific page. I think it's in. Uh, I, I have it written down. Like it's chapter one twenty four, and uh, I think it's around pages like twelve to thirteen. It's it's this nice two page spread of Saitama. Obviously, after punching one of the monsters in one punch, and I love the little detail of, like, him running out of, like, the impact of the punch and, like, carrying all the gold that he found. <laughs> and then and then him immediately dropping the gold and um, becoming very depressed after that. Um, I like that page specifically just because, like, I, I, I always, like, I think um, something that, like, you know, I, like, I enjoyed season two of the anime in particular, despite uh, some improvements that could have been made. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed that season, but something that I really miss from the manga is that, like, whenever Saitama punched something, like, I felt like it lacked a lot of, like, impact. I don't know if anyone else feels that way in particular, but that's just kind of how I felt. Um, in, in the manga, I never feel that way, because I feel like... I feel like the the One Punch Man manga from Yusuke Murata does a really good job of like of selling you the impact on Saitama's punches, and I just I just kind of like that page is like a like a snapshot of him like running through all the monster guts with this gold he found. Um, it's just that 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 page, you know, 
not 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 just looking really cool, but like with all the monster guts flying around and how intricate that one screenshot is. Like I just I just love the detail of him running through monster guts with gold. It's it's pretty great. But yeah, but both those series, I think, in terms of art, uh, I think we're the most consistent this year. I don't know, Lum, if you have any series that you kind of feel that way about off the top of your head or Yeah, I would actually like to mention them, I guess. I mean, I think in terms of art that has consistently blown me away. I will give my first favorite manga art a commendation to Kaiju Number no. 8 by Noyoya Matsumoto. I think their art is consistently impressive. Like, their monster designs, their action scenes. Like, they've created some really breathtaking kind of, you know, heart-stopping stuff in terms of, like, illustrations that are really dynamic and also illustrations that can sometimes rear into the goofy but they also just create just really excellent action scenes but i think one specific moment in kaiju number eight that still sticks with me is their use of color pages in the second chapter after kaiju has after a kafka has blown away like a giant kaiju oh and yeah just this rain of blood this red blood while he's like just standing on the field, like with these remains, like strewn around him, and he's thinking to himself, "This is power that definitely should not be used on humans." And it's like that is just such an impactful moment. I just love, love, love when in mangaka uses color pages so creatively to emphasize a point in their series, like not just like at the beginning of a chapter or anything. Like they save it for a specific moment to emphasize that moment. And that is one that really sticks with me for that reason, because it really does sell just the sheer level of power Kafka has in his new kaiju form. And it is just a striking illustration in its own right. But in general, Naima Matsumoto's illustrations and their color pages, cover pages for the series, you know, every now and again when there's an off week, we get like just a compilation of the illustrations. They are always so, so good, detailed, expressive. I just really, really am enamored with their art. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. Uh, and that that's not that's not something we really see in a lot of manga. I think that's... You know, like uh, the only other series I could think of that got to got away with that in like print was maybe like Sket Dance that I've read uh, with the chapter about uh, about the little like fruit drops or whatever. Like that that that's not the kind of thing you really see in print a lot, as far as I know. Like that that's that's really something that you can really get away with a lot more often in like you know with like a lot of web manga. And I will say I I really like that second chapter as well. I I think I think that was around the moment where. Because I liked the first chapter of Kaiju number eight, but I think that was, I think specifically that was the moment where I was like, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> like, I, I think yeah. that was, that was the hook for me. But uh, actually, while we're on Kaiju number eight, I really want to, it's a very small moment, but I really liked uh, a lot of the fight with Kafka and um, Hoshina, Hoshino? Yeah, Hoshina, that was a really great fight, yeah. Specifically, I love the moment where he sends out two slashes at Kafka Kafka uh, tries to dodge the two slashes only for it to turn out that like those were distractions almost. And like Hoshina comes up to basically comes up closer to Kafka and slashes his arm. I really I, I really love the way that like he slashes Kafka along with the sound effect. I really love details like that. Um, and I hope we see more of that kind of stuff from uh, Kaiju number eight in particular. So uh, another series that I want to highlight is just 
Taikubo's designs for Burn the Witch. Like, you know, I think Burn the Witch really reminded me just how good a character designer Taikubo is, because, you know, he, of course, designed all these characters for the top forms, but also, you know, our main characters, they all look really good. But I think, like, the moment that really stands out for me is just when Cinderella appears and just a striking illustration of its full form in shadow in the moonlight like that really stands out to me like he really succeeds in selling it as this big majestic beast but in general like i think if there's one thing that burn the witch really reminded you of of what i really appreciate about kubo it's that it's design sense and that how he can just make some really slick and cool illustrations and just cool art ideas in general like again bruno bagnice like uh graffiti type of magic where he surrounds Cinderella with this like kind of vortex of graffiti that just reads just choke you it was <laughs> super cool so I want to give Kubo a shout out for that because I think that was what I enjoyed the most about seeing return to manga this year and what makes me look forward to kind of seeing you know as he intermittently returns with more installments of Burn the Witch and then finally, my last art shout out is a little something I suppose I have mixed feelings about, just in the sense of obvious, it has to do with, you know, a series that I really loved, but has kind of been tainted because of the actions of one half of the creative team. But the other half of that creative team is one of the most talented artists working in the industry today. And that is Shiru Sasaki. And her illustrations for Octodge were in and of themselves so beautiful and incredible. And those color illustrations, especially just appreciating them as works of art in and of themselves, are so freaking awesome. The one she drew for the chapter 100, which had all the main characters in suits, just sitting like bosses in cool chairs while sitting towards the back are like the mentor figures of them or like the adults behind the scenes and then all the other super cool illustrations she did like the one with Kay in all her outfits or the one with Kay in like that really stylish street fashion in Tokyo that had such great colors to them and such a great jacket costume design and hat just the entire look was so amazing like she's such a good character designer she's such a great artist i'm glad that she has gotten another chance to work back and jump again with that recent one shot and i hope she gets another series again soon because i i can't wait to enjoy her art in a series again because it is just so fantastic and that was still true for this year she drew some of the most memorable illustrations I saw in any manga all year. And even if I can't enjoy that manga as a story anymore, I can still appreciate just the art that she has drawn and look forward to all the art she's going to create next. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally agree. Again, it, it is a shame what would happen with, um, with Octage and everything that happened. But again, I'm, I could tell you right now, um, you bet your bottom dollar that I'm going to be reading the next thing that Shira Usazaki comes out with, especially if she gets another series with Shonen Jump. So, mm. but here, so I want to mention a few quick moments that I actually had uh, before we move on. My first one, 
Again, none of these are in like any particular order, but uh, first thing I want to mention real quick is a page from Black Clover that really creeped me out uh, from chapter 257 in particular, just after Yami does his uh, deadly thrust attack uh, that was only meant to be a thrust, but it turned into a cannon. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, that was very close to being like one of my favorite moments from this year, but um, I really like the second page of the chapter in particular, where basically he gives the creepiest face I've ever seen yeah. <laughs> uh, right before he's about to uh, regenerate. I just like that page turn, especially coming from the last chapter where it really felt like, oh yeah, Yami's got this in the bag. And like, you can count on Yami and then it's like, oh shit, well this guy has more up his sleeve. Uh, well, maybe maybe it's going to take a little bit more to take this guy out. Like, it's it's just such a creepy, doofy face. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's this weird mix of like, it, it's hard to take seriously, but at the same time, it's like really unsettling and I, I really appreciate it. But yeah, that, that was just a small reaction image that I, uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, in terms of page turners, I also really want to highlight uh spy family chapter 23. Uh, I think it's from like pages four to six where, uh, Anya is obviously at this point trying to get, uh, Damien to come on over to the forger house and it's after she gets her new dog and uh she she comes in with the with the obviously brilliant plan to tell damien that she has a new dog only for damien to be like so what and then it leads up with this great full page reaction of anya being shocked that her brilliant plan has fallen apart <laughs> i just i just love how much space uh tatsuya endo gave to these moments I really felt the built up from Anya enacting her plan to, again, Damien giving his very nonchalant response, again, uh, all the way into the page turn with Anya reacting uh, very shocked. Like the comedic timing of those of that bit was really funny. And I think it I think it uh, that bit kind of owes it to sort of the composition and the page layout of those uh, of those three pages. Um, uh, pro pro probably one of the funniest moments from Spy Family this past year, too. La last one I want to mention real quick is uh, Chainsaw Man Chapter 60, which, uh, if I remember correctly, is, uh, I believe that's the chapter where uh, they're fighting Quan Chi. And um, I, re I really like that chapter because, uh, I mean, there there's, there's so many, like, uh, honestly, like, I... If I had to pick, like, a third place in terms of, like, most consistent art, it would probably be Chainsaw Man, honestly, because... And look, I'll talk about Chainsaw Man a lot more in a second, but Chainsaw Man, just in general, I think it's... In terms of just sheer composition and, like, paneling, I think is probably the most consistent thing that ran in Jump last year. Like, specific moments I really like, because the whole thing with Quan Chi, right, like... You know, she's she's running from a particular spot all the way to the mall and like where the group is at. And like while she's running as fast as she can, like you could barely see her. She's literally a blur. And like, you know, it's one of those things where like she cuts down all these people and all these dolls and she does it so fast that like there's like a delayed like reaction almost. And like I, I just I just love the trail of like uh, of like headless people she leaves behind uh, all kind of leading to, uh, uh, like the two page spread in particular, where it's like almost kind of a, I don't know what you would call it, like, um, not a fisheye lens thing, but like, it's a very warped kind of shot of like, uh, of just a bunch of the dolls, like cut in half, uh, 
again, just the destruction that she left in her wake trying to uh, trying to pursue Denji's group. And, you know, stuff like that one particular page where uh, Quan Chi is about to take out uh, the angel devil, I believe. And uh, it's like right before that where I I love the way Fujimoto kind of lays out this page where like it's hard to describe, right? Like the the like the headless dolls in between the severed doll heads and the bodies you could see you could see Angel catching Quan Chi almost about to murder them. And I just I, I just I just love the way that like Fujimoto uses uh the, the headless dolls to kind of like as like page borders almost it's it's really really cool stuff that like you don't always see in a lot of shonen jump manga like to me i feel like the most talented artists in jump you use these kinds of techniques like i, I would i would put i would put fujimoto in terms of those kind of flourishes i would put him up there with with people like you say matsui almost mm-hmm. but uh yeah i i thought in terms of like i guess also in terms of like standalone chapters uh again i i thought the art for this chapter was especially very good but yeah that's that's really about it for my picks yeah those are really great moments but yeah uh, speaking of we we should move on to favorite manga moments uh if you want to go first uh sure so i mean there are a lot of like different uh individual moments that i was thinking about picking i think on the subject of chainsaw man I think my first one is obviously when they are all cast in the hell. And this is also an art moment because this is some of the most psychedelic and bizarre creative visuals that I think have ever graced the pages of Shonen Jump. Oh, yeah. With like the giant hand coming in and like taking the building and then them being cast into hell and then the astronauts and the the doors in the sky yeah that astronaut page i genuinely believe is going to be like one of the most iconic things to come out of chainsaw man yeah and to say nothing of when the darkness devil comes out and just sticks <laughs> cuts the <laughs> arms off of everyone and spells darkness with them <laughs> oh man Oh, this is some really wild shit. Like, it was so horrific and unsettling, just the visuals, imageries, and just the suspense in these pages, in this entire sequence, that it really stands out as, like, such an incredibly distinct moment in an already incredibly bizarre series full of wild moments. Oh, yeah. Beyond a chainsaw man, I want to shout out a moment from Wave Listen to Me that really kind of touched me. Wave Listen to Me is a series that doesn't really have a lot of truly sincere moments, I would say, or it has a habit of like having like these genuine moments of characters pep talking each other only to subvert it later. And that sort of happens in this case, but it happens in a delayed way. And I think the core message is still really strong. And so there's this basic arc in Wavelengths to Me where Minare was tasked with kind of like helping out this kind of recluse who has like shut himself away in his room after a tragic, supposedly tragic incident as we later find out uh, where his uh, younger sister, mother, got into an accident 
and seemingly died. Uh, and so he like locked himself away and his like adopted sister like contacts Minari to help him out. And so there's this big earthquake happens and in this like they have they finally get this guy out there and they like take him to a shelter and as circumstances end up leading him to help out at the uh, cafe that Minari usually works out and he just helps like kind of you know serve food to people kind of displaced by the earthquake you know with the other staff and he just kind of you know he has all this social anxiety and is afraid to talk to people but he ends up you know uh doing this job and he's thanked at one point for you know a service by someone and then he later has a you know conversation with Nakahara who is, you know, one of the protagonists who also works at the, the cafe about, like, that experience. And he tells him, you know, everyone isn't, like, so different. Like, he, Junichi, this character who is a recluse who shut himself away, like, he has all these anxieties and feels like he can't function in society like a normal person. But Nakahara tells him that, hey, you know, everyone has, like, their own worries and anxieties and is, like, struggling to, like, get by uh, but like, you know, in that moment where he was like, thanked, you know, that person who was thanking him didn't like see him as, you know, someone off or someone who was, you know, abnormal. Like she just saw him as like a person who was doing a good job. And so the message that Nakar gets Janichi is like, hey, you know, everyone is struggling and hiding their own anxieties and stuff. You know, you shouldn't feel so ashamed for not having figured yourself out yet or having all these fears or whatever. And Junichi takes that the heart uh, in a way that, you know, in classic wave fashion is a little kind of ironic and uh, not kind of the sweet, sincere takeaway uh, you would normally expect. But this one moment I thought was very affecting and sweet to me. About, like, just telling this guy who, you know, has all this crippling social anxiety and uh, and stuff, like, hey, you know, it's okay to have all these worries, but that doesn't mean that you're not fit to, like, be in society. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're abnormal because other people are also going through stuff that they also, you know, kind of hide, you know, when they interact with people. And that's, you know... You're okay. You're, there's nothing abnormal about you, and you shouldn't feel like you should hide yourself your way because you don't know how to interact or deal with people. Because you can, you can, you can work at it, and you can get by, and you can, uh, you know, learn to be comfortable with that. So I thought that was actually a really sweet, moving message. And that entire earthquake arc uh, in Wave was really good this year in general. But uh, I, th- I thought this story with the character Junichi, even though the ultimate takeaway he has is not necessarily the, the, the sweetest, uh, because he's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, he's like, basically, oh, out of spite, I am going to, like, uh, succeed in life or whatever. <laughs> but like, I, I still think this moment was was really sweet. And I, I thought it was a good message. And I think my top favorite moment though this year the moment that you know i didn't think it was going to like enthrall me as much like i was expecting it but i didn't think i was going to be as satisfied as i was with it but it really did just super super feel so cathartic and so awesome when it did and that was when dobby you know revealed his true identity he exposed endeavor's entire abusive past to all of society all the abuse he caused on his family, all the trauma, 
And he revealed himself as a villain who, out of spite, became the way he was because of what Endeavor did to him as a child. And just him ending this entire read against Endeavor by saying, the past never dies. Ah, it was so, so satisfying. I'm so excited to see the ramifications of this because it truly breaks Endeavor. Like after that, Endeavor is just staring at the ground after this. He can't even participate in the fight anymore. It's just, oh man, I was not expecting to be as into this moment as I was because But I was like, man, this was super satisfying when it happened. Because it's literally years of build up to this. Years of like, especially after thinking, hey, Endeavor is trying to intone. And, you know, hero society is depending on him and looking up on him. And now that's all crumbling down in this movie. Dobby just destroys all of it. And it feels so awesome to see. Uh, So, yeah, I I really like that moment a lot. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about Dobby a little bit more later, but yeah, suffice to say, that was like some of my favorite stuff in My Hero Academia this year, too. But uh, yeah, I guess we can move on to some of my favorite manga moments. Uh, just three I want to talk about here. A-, a lot of them pretty small, but still, or at least th- this first one's probably like the smallest, but uh, actually one from uh, from Sakamoto days, actually. Interesting. So, uh, was it chapter five of Sakamoto Days is kind of like the second half of the story where, you know, uh, Sakamoto uh, and um, what's his name? See, now I've caught caught the Maxi disease. I can't remember any characters' names. Um, (laughs) Maxi, we love you. Um, But uh, uh, the Sakamoto duo, as I'm going to call them, runs into the Chinese girl uh, who is basically being uh, sought after by uh, some mobsters and, you know, they, they save her from them and she kind of get ba- gets back at them for like, you know, killing her parents or whatever. And uh, I like the moment where Shin is like, Hey, while we're here, we might as well just uh, d- d- basically implying, Hey, we should, we might as well finish the job and kill them. And uh, Sakamoto kind of like stops him a bit. And then uh, Lou in particular, you know, she's like, hey, you know what? Like, that's enough. Like, if I killed everyone who wronged me, you know, basically the cycle would never end. And, you know, my father taught me that the best revenge is to live a happy life. And I think I think that moment in particular really touched me just because, like, I feel like I don't I mean, I'm, I'm sure they exist, but like, I feel like I don't run across a lot of like uh, a lot of like revenge stories that where you know, the character who wants to seek revenge, like, has that line of thinking or comes to that line of thinking, especially like in like shonen manga almost. Like, I don't know. I, I just I just feel like I don't I don't see characters who just who just, you know, spout that kind of thing so matter of factly, like 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 that's just a fact of life. Like, hey, like you know, the like again, the, the best way she can live her life, uh, the best way she can get revenge is just have a happy life. You know, is to just live like it's just so it's just such such a simple thing that like really resonated with me a little bit because again it's just not something i see very often from characters mm-hmm. and i don't know i I, th- I think like i already really enjoyed sakamoto family and i thought it was very amusing but i i think this was the moment that made me think like okay i'm gonna 
I'm I'm gonna keep up with this. Like it's it like Sakamoto family really has been selling me a lot lately, and uh, I think you're getting some titles mixed up. See, see that I, I I did this on the Shonen Jump retrospective too. I keep Spy calling Ash it missions Sakamoto <laughs> family days. I, I keep getting all the spy assassin mangas mixed up into one. Um, <laughs> my my point still stands. I'm like I'm actively looking forward to more Sakamoto days and like seeing how it develops from here like i think you brought it up on our show to jump retrospective but like 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 the main sakamoto trio really does kind of remind me of like the sort of dynamic of the yorozuya from gintama uh mm-hmm. and like ever since you said that like that hasn't left my mind but yeah when it when it comes to lou in particular that that was just such a like that was just such a like a wow huh like I, I I didn't expect that. Like it's just it's just so simple. Like you like like you don't think about it too much. And uh, I I I think that really it was just one of those moments that showed me like okay this is the kind of manga that it is. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it, it's it's hard for me to kind of explain it uh, past that. But no, I think you've explained it well. Like yeah, it is a really sweet moment in a series that has just started up, but it seems very promising. Hmm. I guess it also hits, it also hits, especially because, you know, Sakamoto Days is about an assassin who, you know, is trying to live a normal life and is trying to do his best to stay on the right path and not continue killing, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of uh, the other two moments I want to talk about real quickly. Um, so Black Clover Chapter 257 um, all I'll say is the chapter where Asta and Yami team up, and I, I honestly like again. I, I have such a weird relationship with Black Clover, where like again, I really hated it when I first started it, and <laughs> and now and now th- this was the chapter where I realized, oh, I actually like care about these characters. <laughs> um, and it, it was just, I I th- I think this chapter in particular was like my biggest fuck yeah moment. Like I, I kind of, I kind of like fist pumped after I finished the chapter. <laughs> it, it was just one of those things where it's like, you know, you could tell that like when Yami is like, "Hey, kid, I need you," or whatever. Like that means so much to Asta, and like, and it's kind of infectious, like how much it means to him almost. And it's just such a good feeling, and I, it's just I, I can't really put it into words. It, it just felt really nice, and I. Uh, I'll talk about it in a little bit, but like the the fight following that after was also very good. So, the pro- pro- probably the best team up of 2020, I'm willing to say. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, last but not least, uh, my last moment is actually from uh, Yozakura Family. Oh, speaking of the other assassin manga, um, so chapter 59, which is b- basically the conclusion of uh, Tayo's fight with Yuki, who we find out has a lot of ties to his past and like, you know, what happened to his family because she's part of the reason that, uh, his family, unfortunately, you know, died in that accident. Um, you know, I I say she's part of the reason because the whole thing is like, she completely blames herself entirely for that. And, uh, I really like the beginning of the chapter when she eventually, you know, passes away from, you know, from her illness because I think the whole thing was that, like, she she had, like, these sun earrings that, like, had data or whatever. 
that were basically like a keepsake from Tayo's family that were given to Yuki. And Tayo like gives the like it's almost kind of convenient because it's like, oh, I have I have a ring that can like encrypt data or whatever. So you could just you could just have these earrings back. But it's also a really nice moment because, you know, uh, there's a lot of like, I don't know what you would call it, like symbolism going on with Tayo, you know, his name. I think as far as I could tell, like, I think his name, like, means sun or, like, sunlight yeah. or something. And so, like, there, there's a lot of, like, th- there's some symbolism going on there where it's like, oh, now the light has finally shined on me or whatever. And I don't know, just just a lot of that I felt like was, that got a bit of a tear out of me. I'm not going to lie. Like, uh, like Yozakura Family is a series overall that, like you know, I'm okay with, and, like, I occasionally enjoy it. Like, it has some, it has very high highs every once in a while, and I think this was one of them. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. And, and just in general, like, I, I thought Tayo's fight with Yuki, again, you know, I originally didn't think much of it. Like, I, I definitely wasn't expecting us to find out more about Tayo's backstory from this fight, but, like, uh, it turned out to be much more significant than I thought it was going to be. And uh, I thought the ending of that fight was surprisingly very emotional. Absolutely. But I think we can move on to our next uh, category, which is uh, our favorite new powers, techniques, and transformations then. Mm-hmm. This is another newer category that we want to do. Mm-hmm. Which, um, one that I had a lot of trouble kind of trying to to pick something for because, like... I, I mean, maybe it's also because, like, I have a hard, like, I wanted to pick something, like, new, and it was, it. this is one of those things where it's hard for me to keep track of, like, when was introduced what, right? But uh, I guess my easy answer, I'm going to say, is uh, I think my favorite, like, power from the past year has to be Andy's regenerative powers from uh, Undead Unluck. Um, just, just because, like, and I, I talked about this on the podcast, but, like, I just love that, like, his regenerative powers and, like, the speed at which he regenerates allows him to use his uh, use his fingers as literal bullets. Yeah, but he also can use the explosive power of his regeneration to, like, shoot himself up into the air, like, when regenerating his legs and stuff, or shoot his own head, like, from his body, yeah. like, inside, like, a barrier, and he uses it in such creative ways. No, yeah, like, in general, a lot of the stuff from Undead Unluck, I think, was the most creative in terms of, like, different fights and powers and stuff, so, uh, that, that, that's, that's my short answer, um, I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious what your answer is. Oh, I have a few, uh, I mean, I think, in addition to that, I like the combo use of Andy's Undead and Fuku's Unluck in fights. Oh, yeah. How... They can play upon both of their abilities in unison to make some really great, powerful attacks. Like, you know, Fuko summoning that giant meteor by touching Andy, you know, just extended period of time. And they can, like, really combine their powers in a way to, you know, push their enemies into, like, difficult situations to get one up on them. So I like them using their powers together. And then for another, Hunted and like has so many interesting powers. Like I also like Druze's Unjustice. I mean, we don't see her use it that much so far, but like that just that one moment when the aliens are like invading and she just interrogates them. It's like, so it's invading Earth and like, it's, 
thriving humanity, your sense of justice, and then she tricks the alien saying it is, and so she activates her unjustice and destroys all the spaceships <laughs> like in the sky. It's just incredible. Like I really thought that was such a cool moment, and that's such an interesting power too. Like just the way Unluck is able to like play with characters being able to like manipulate the world around him through their powers is super interesting. Like the manga artist too, and their ability to like you know, draw things into existence. Mm -hmm. Like that alien invasion for any other series that could have been its own arc. Yeah. (laughs) It's sold in less than a chapter in just a couple pages. She destroys (laughs) entire alien armada. She, they self, she makes them using her powers, self-destruct each other. Just the reaction of that one alien general guy just reacting. He's like, what's happening? And he's just like (laughs) screaming in shock and confusion. It's just so priceless. Yeah, it's pretty good. Oh man. Undead and Luck has so many creative powers, but beyond that series, uh, I also really like Vegeta's spirit fission technique that he learned in Dragon Ball Super. Like, this was all his training on Yardrat was building up to learning how to master his control of Ki in order to come up with a technique that would be effective in the fight against Moro. And I love the reveal of this, too, in the fight, because when Vegeta comes to Earth and engages Moro, like, he just immediately begins you know punching him and fighting him and it's like huh wait what is vegeta's move here like he's just fighting moro like what is his new technique like it just seems like he's doing the same thing he tried before when they fought him the first time but as the fight goes on you're noticing oh wait moro is noticing something's up and he's losing power and then you realize oh vegeta Basically, every time he contacts Moro, even though he's not his, the blows themselves are not hurting Moro. He's stealing bits of Moro's energy, and that's the technique Vegeta learned in Spirit Vision. It's a way to dispel key, and so by just touching Moro in the fight, he's able to like rob him of some of his power. But this application can be used in other ways. It can be used to give power to people, too. So in the climax of the fight, when Goku needs energy in order to recharge himself to the full power of your instinct to land the final blow on Moro, like Vegeta is able to gather energy from everyone else, including... uh, This is a... a thing maybe I should have mentioned in my favorite moments, but including God key energy from Oob which was such a great moment that tied something from earlier in the arc together. And he's able to give that on to Goku. So like he really learned such a unique and different type of power that I, I hope he continues to utilize. Like he briefly learned instant transmission and immediately was like, you know what? I'm not going to keep using this. I could barely pull it off the first time and I don't want to just use your move Kakarot. So, you know, I'm not going to use that ever again. But I think the spirit fishing thing is just super cool in its applications of how Vegeta used it in this fight. And I, I really, really was impressed. I thought it was really cool power. And then the last thing I'll mention is kind of, you know, this is kind of a shit posty answer, but uh, <laughs> the, the penis powers, the penis attributes from a Gravity Boys. Oh, Jesus. They're so funny. <laughs> just, I love just the balls of a Gravity Boys 
to have this be its final arc. The final arc is like Grislo is so distraught from learning that Chris was a guy that he enters the penis world where he meets the human world of his own penis who teaches him about penis attributes. And so he masters penis power and is able to harness that energy to productive ends and that inspires everyone else to also master penis powers. And then it's revealed that Baba had had mastered his a long time ago and was super powerful. He's a penis prodigy, as he is called. <laughs> and it's just so ridiculous. How many times but, can you say penis? Yeah, I just love the juvenile audacity of gravity boys to come up with this idea and then take it so, like seriously enough to have this be like the final arc of the series of characters learning this power and then using it in one chapter. That is yeah. pretty amazing. As much as I did it really gel with the gravity boys, unfortunately, that I, I I might pick it up at some point just, just to get to that, honestly. It's like the last four chapters, so honestly, if you want to skip to that, that's fine and stuff. I'm just picking I admit I am picking this for the novelty of it, but it genuinely amuses me that a Gravity Boys came up with this idea and that it really ran with it in the way that it did. Honestly, like if I were reading it, I probably would have picked it too. So mm. I mean I think I mean one of I think your favorite moments in a earlier best of pod was like a lot like a a long-term dick joke that was in Gintama. Like a big payoff that was like just one giant dick joke. So Yeah, yeah. The the one where uh where what was it? Gengai has a giant cannon coming out from the earth and it just turns out to be a the the Neo Jet Armstrong Cyclone Jet Armstrong Cannon. Mm-hmm. I think I got that right. Uh, I mean, look, we, we are not above really good dick jokes on Manga Mavericks. No, I mean, especially if it's genuinely uh, amusing, which I if I found it to be. <laughs> huh. you, you, you could you could say we appreciate it when our favorite manga go balls deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, of course, power techniques, they all have application in fights, which is our next category. Mm hmm. And uh, I can go here real quickly because I I mentioned um, Yami and Asta's fight versus Dante. I mean, in general, I think in terms of like consistently entertaining fights, I think Black Clover had them in spades this year. Yeah. Um, like I, I legitimately thought all of them were really fun and uh, really uh, just 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 really entertaining. Like th- this is. Like, this is not a knock against Black Clover at all, but Black Clover is definitely the kind of thing I definitely would have enjoyed as, like, a middle schooler. Like, I I would have, not that I don't eat it up, but, like, like, as a teenager, I would have eaten this shit up, especially. But, yeah, saying that, like, I, I, Yami and Asta's fight with Dante in particular, I mean, I, I, I just think, like, they're confrontation with Dante just in general you know them going from Asta fighting Dante to like you know obviously Asta and the rest of the Black Bulls that are with him are like in danger of dying you know until Yami shows up and then Yami comes in eventually with his with his death thrust which is again so goddamn amazing and uh you know the uh, Asta and Yami teaming up and them just like slashing at Dante continuously 
getting faster, switching blades, uh, Asta channeling his inner devil power. Like, I, I, I just love the way the fight builds up to its conclusion. And then, you know, obviously after that, we we get the shocking reveal that Yami eventually ends up getting kidnapped. And that, that I think is actually one of the most devastating things to happen in black Clover because I love Yami and I don't want anything to happen to him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that fight was good. And then, um, I weirdly had a hard time trying to think of like single fights that really stood out to me this year. I don't know if you had that problem, but like, or maybe you'll have more to talk about than I will, but like the only other fight that I really want to mention is uh, Aki and Denji's fight from Chainsaw Man when uh, Aki eventually becomes like a gun devil sort of thing. And just just the, the like, like the fight itself isn't like super interesting, admittedly, maybe not that I can remember anyway, but like I, I just I just think. In terms of fights where I'm invested in what's going on and I don't want either character to lose, I think this was a good one. Like, especially with Aki seeing the fight through the lens of like, hey, he's he's kids with Denji and they're playing like a snowball fight or whatever. And, you know, eventually leading up to Denji killing Aki and pretty assumedly you know playing catch with his brother you know in the afterlife and god you know i like there's so much i could say about aki in particular as a character like i think i think um i think he's he became such a like well-rounded fleshed out character that like i grew to you know care for especially when like before this fight you know he was trying to get out of the game you know, try to get out of devil hunting and just live a normal life with, you know, Denji and power in another really good chapter that uh, I didn't mention, but like it was still very good. But yeah, no, that entire fight was super devastating again, a- along with the rest of Chainsaw Man, which I'll probably mention later. But yeah, I think again, it, in terms of fights that I was emotionally invested in, I think that would destroyed me the most. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I'm in, I'm interested in um in what fights you picked. There were so many like different fights that it was kind of hard to pick like which ones like really stood out to me. I feel like I have to mention just the entire battle royale though in Chainsaw Man with all the assassins going after Denji. Oh like, yeah, the fight. I mean, we meant you mentioned that moment where Kwanji came in and like cut up all the doll devils in that one scene, but like just in that entire fight beginning to end with all the different characters involved, Santa Claus slash the doll devil, and then Kwanji and her fiends, Hishibe and Aki and uh, Denji, like everyone involved, like that just was such a ride beginning to end. Hell and oh back. my god, did the darkness devil basically slaughtering everybody? Yeah, I mean, Denji lighting himself on fire to cut through <laughs> the doll devil was such an amazing moment. Oh man, like yeah. that entire. I mean, that's kind of like the entire arc almost, that entire fight, but it's just such a ride that is just so memorable. And Chainsaw Man had like a lot of crazy fights. I mean, and it also had an emotional fight you mentioned with, you know, Denji and Aki. But like in terms of like uh, incredible action sequence beginning to end, like that was a real trip, I thought. 
just an entire sequence. Yeah, like, in preparation for our Shonen Jump retrospective, like, a lot of the, like, I had to catch up on a lot of the stuff. So, like, for Chainsaw Man in particular, I read a lot of that in, like, one big chunk. Um, so that is, like, r- like marathoning through that arc was especially, like, a wild ride. Yeah. And that's kind of a thing, though, is that I because, like, a lot of these fights happen weekly and because, like, I haven't been able to revisit them as much as I'd hoped to, like, I can't... And, like, there are fights in Black Clover uh, that I also really, really enjoyed while they were happening. But, like, I can't tell you the specifics now, so I don't really want to, like, mention them, even though, like, I do truly enjoy them. Uh, I w- But, like, for some others that I really enjoyed, uh, I think that, you know, the big climactic showdown, kind of what the entire Shibuya incident was leading up to of Itadori versus Mahito was so, so intense and so, so good. I mean, the lead into it, like, Itadori has been through hell, and Mahito just adds fuel to the power before the fight and during the fight, and then Toto comes in for the assist and to motivate uh, Itadori during the fight, and then they team up, and of course, they use their powers in combination in a great way, but Toto has to sacrifice his arm at one point just because Mahito himself is evolving. And then uh, that that also leads to a great fake out where Toto pretends that he's still able to use his technique, even though he can't anymore, but that fake out is enough for Itadori to land a critical blow on Mahito. And then just finally pushing him, Mahito, to the point where, like, you know, this truly callous character, this person who toys with other person's life, finally at the end of the fight is, like, finally fearing for his own life is just so satisfying. So that entire fight, I thought, was so, so good. Like, especially the contributions that both, you know, Nobara and Toto added to it. And then just kind of the culmination of Itadori's like character arc and, you know, conflict with Mahato too. So that was so satisfying. But I think the most satisfying fight in terms of buildup and payoff and emotion that was, I, that I read in manga this year was from Blue Exorcist, Rin versus Yukio. Mm. Cause, you know, like Rin, of course, just wants to, you know, bring his better back. He has gone through this entire journey of seeing what happened to him in the past and, you know, revisiting, you know, what happened to his mother, what happened to Father Fujimoto, and realizing that he truly was loved. Like, he thought that he was like a cursed existence that perhaps people's lives would be happier if he hadn't been born. But he sees that Father Fujimoto and his mother, they truly did love him. And that makes him feel, hey, I'm not a mistake. Me being born, me existing is not a mistake. And he also wants to convince Yukio of that because Yukio is, he infiltrated the Illuminati to destroy it and then he was going to kill himself to prevent Satan from reviving in him. And so in this fight, Yukio is trying to goad Rin into killing him. Rin is trying to bring his brother back to, uh, to see the light and to work together. And trust trying to reach out to him. And through this fight, Reynolds has to, you know, grapple with his own demon powers and keeping that under control and preventing Satan from manifesting in him. And he does. He fights back against that, suppresses that, rejects that. Like all the while, Satan is taunting them, trying to, you know, goad them into this conflict with each other so that he can, you know, make Rin the perfect vessel for him to revive himself. And, you know, they just 
managed to ultimately reject them. And then ultimately, like, after exhausting a lot of their, you know, powers, like, it just ends up into being, like, this fist fight between Rin and Yukio. Just this super emotional fist fight. And this is some of the most compelling action of the entire fight. It's just them just wailing on each other, just pure fist, and just trying to get through to each other. That, like, they, you know, each one of them had different ideas of, like, how the other saw each other each one of them wanted to protect their brother and admire their brother in their own way and they finally finally get through to each other like all their complicated feelings about each other and come to a sense of closure and understanding within that and that they truly do love each other and that they can persevere together i, I just thought it was a very very strong fight it's like half the year of blue exercise I mean, it's a monthly series but it's, you know like, it was a very long, but a very, like, long built-up fight for these brothers to, like, finally, finally come to terms. Especially for Yukio's arc of not feeling like he... He he also feeling kind of like Rin at the start that, you know, his life is a cursed one. He he should off himself to Rin Sainer from reviving and that things would be better off for both him and Rin that way. But, you know, we're coming to, you know, there's some kind of understanding that they, you know, love each other and they want, they want each other to live. And it's just, it's very moving and it's very, very intense and very powerful fight. So I, I really enjoyed it. I was really satisfied with it. Because this is something like long time coming. And I think it delivered. You remind me that I need to eventually like get back on reading Blue Exorcist. Yeah. And I think it's also better read in a, binge because this flashback like i think re uh following it monthly like there are times where i had kind of drifted out of it but like being able to read it all in a longer stretch just back to back is what really is, keeps it super investing because i can also retain everything that's happening but the flashback arc also took like two years or something so it was super good it's a super good story though and honestly, probably something I should have mentioned in my favorite moment was the the moment where Rin accidentally like allows himself to be seen by Fujimoto in the past and then just asks him about him raising Rin and Yukio and what it's like to be a father. And just Father Fujimoto just saying that how proud he is, you know, of his boys and how he's thinking of them, how he's trying to like help them, you know, grow and learn what they're capable of by teaching them how to cook. And uh, that was just so touching. And then just, you know, Rin doesn't let on who he is. But before he's eating, he just say, like, Father, thank you. And I th think there's this understanding that Fujimoto knows that that is Rin grown up. And he's he acknowledges that, even though he doesn't say as much. And it's just uh, such a great moment. Oh, man. Blue Exorcist is another thing we need to cover on the show at some point. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we we maybe wait a year or two and it could end... Perhaps and I feel like you know it, it could end up winning game, but I'm totally fine with waiting until it ends. But I'm just saying, at some point, I think that needs to be an episode of the show. Yeah, I think that's going to be my top fight. Though I, uh, I think we should acknowledge some of Gabby's favorite fights that uh, she wrote in, and one that is also on my list is Adler's versus Jackals and IQ, which is like just pure payoff in terms of the themes of the series and character development in the series. And again, the only reason I didn't mention is the same reason like I didn't mention a lot of the Black Clover fights is that, you know, 
so much happened that is like I haven't been able to reread it, and so I can't speak about it in terms of the specifics. But it, that was just like pure catharsis every week in terms of the payoffs in that arc and in that match. So I mean, I think the final arc of IQ is truly a masterpiece. That match, that final match is truly one too. I do think it's one of the best, and I, I really look forward to rereading the entire series and that, because, like, it truly cemented Haikyuu something special. And I'll talk about, like, some more of that, because I do have an acknowledgement for Haikyuu in a, in a later category, but she also mentions that the tennis match in Spy Family was one of her favorites, and a lot of people were up and down with the whole Nightfall arc, but I do think there were a lot of really funny moments in that match that was really entertaining. And yeah, she also acknowledges that it's sad as some of her favorite conflicts were an act dodge. And I also agree, like, if I were to think about, like, the play uh, rivalry and some of that stuff, you know, it is, it is a shame, but you know, which it is what it is at this point. I think we should also mention, though, we kind of missed it over before when we were talking about licenses. Like, Gabi did mention some of her favorite licenses that happened, which included Skullface Honda Song by Fandogamia. And uh, the Yu-Gi-Oh! Tonkawa edition by Panini and Yuki Dimaso, uh the Milky Way editions in Spanish. Gabi lives in Peru. So, yeah, these were great licenses uh, for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. They, they sound really great. But uh, I guess we should move on to favorite uh, manga protagonists. Yes, I think that is our next category. Um, so I, I only have one choice because I think it's the strongest choice for me in particular and, uh, kind of cheating, but they're a complete package. You can't have one without the other. Hmm. And that's Andy and Fuko from Undead. Yeah. Yeah. Like, seriously, we, we, like, if you let me talk about Undead Unluck, we could go on for like another hour on top of, I don't know, we shouldn't, but, uh, (laughs) but all I'll say is I think. The part of the reason I've really enjoyed Undead Unluck for this past year is just kind of seeing Andy and Fuko, you know, work off of each other and like seeing their partnership kind of grow. I, I I think the moment that really sold me on Undead Unluck in particular was the moment where again I'm forgetting character names, but uh it's after they fight um they fight the one girl from uh from the union who uh was keeping herself young that Andy knew from like a long time ago. Gina. Yeah. 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 And, uh, Fuko talks about like all the stuff she wants to change and everything. Uh, and just basically makes her big declarations before they're immediately, uh, kidnapped by the union. Andy tries to shoot his projectile fingers at the union and they all like, they all know, sell it. <laughs> and that was pretty amazing on its own. But I really like how that chapter ends in particular with, you know, again, Andy and Fuko are now in the union and they like tap their glasses together as like a little like to kind of like declaration almost against the union. And just I I just I loved all, like I love the way they work off of each other. And I, ju- I just love the way they work off of each other and the way that like they kind of influence each other, especially with Fuko. And and how she like kind of influences Andy and like how he see how he views death, like I don't know. There's there's so much more I could say, but like I genuinely think they're probably my favorite like pairing and like favorite pairing and like I think in terms of the characters I was the most invested in seeing grow 
Like, Undead Unluck in general, just like, in just one year, this series has gone through so much and has gone to so many places to the point where, like, I'm pretty convinced that it could end, uh, like, before the end of this year. Yeah, it could be a Chainsaw Man-like situation where it does just have a short run. But even so, it has been a satisfying ride, and I really have appreciated the character film that Fuko in particular has gone through. Uh, the relationship between her and Andy is some of the strongest and most compelling in Jump right now, especially with this recent you know, flashback arc that has forged her bond even stronger, and I think has generally made their relationship, again, one of the most compelling romantic relationships, even in Jump. Oh yeah, for sure. But that was kind of my only pick, uh, if you want to talk about your picks. I'll also limit mine, not because I, I mean, I have many I could mention, but because, you know, you've mentioned just one and because we're also running a little long, I'll just keep it uh, short as well. But I think both of the ones I want to mention are from the same series. But yeah, I think to start off with, even though I am up and down with the different roots that we never learn, I think the one constant that made each arc worthwhile in some way was Uega as a character himself and the introspection or reflection he has in each arc about, you know, what his own happiness that he wants for himself is and how he wants to help the person he really loves, which differs in each arc, but just his own realizations in each specific circumstance. And then, of course, the his approach to helping others in need and through working their own uh, emotional blocks, whether it be, you know, helping Seijo reconnect with her parents in the Ogata uh, route or... Uh, even Kirisu kind of learning to break out of her shell and be comfortable forging uh, connections with other people again in that route as you know even though I wasn't the biggest fan of that I thought that was a genuinely sweet moment that showed just Yuiga's strength as a protagonist and being just so thoughtful and considerate but also him having his own growing in terms of considering like how to best help this person but also how to best help you know find his own happiness and i think the best arc in which that happens though and which leads you to the other character i want to shout out is in the asumi route because both of them have like in that route up very complicated feelings about their relationship and they're also trying to you know pursue their own careers and grow in their own careers azumi as a doctor yuega as a teacher they find themselves in a situation where they both end up helping teaching each other coaching each other through you know kind of roadblocks they have in you know in Uega's case dealing with the kids he is working with in Azumi's case also dealing with patients but also getting over some of her nervousness in terms of performing surgery and where this comes in with Azumi's character arc is like Azumi is racked with the guilt of what happened to Uega's dad because you know, her dad and his dad were friends and Uega's dad, you know, was, you know, terminally ill at one point and came to Azumi's dad for help. But he, you know, because he was just kind of a local doctor, couldn't really do much for him. And unfortunately, Uega's dad passed away shortly after that. And Azumi is racked with that guilt of like her father couldn't help his father. And she feels like some sense of responsibility. It feels like she can't make Uega happy because of that. And then eventually she has to be put in... Uh, Yueka makes his feelings clear that he doesn't, you know, 
care about any of that. But also she's put in a position where she has to save Wega's life. Like she has to get over her own like fear of performing surgery and her own like earlier in the arc, you know, she was really bad at doing stitches and Yueka coached her how to do stitches well because he was, you know, is a great has skill in sewing and stuff in his summer technique. And so she's able to use what Yueka taught her and able to get over her own like robot and fear to save the life of the person she loves. And it's just such a cathartic, just so emotional a conclusion to that storyline and the culmination of that relationship in terms of the lessons both of them taught each other and that coming into play in the climax of that storyline. So I think Uegas throughout all the roots had moments where he really shone as a protagonist as, as so compelling. But assuming out of all the characters uh, in We Never Learn that got their own roots, like she had such a fantastic character arc and one of the strongest character arcs I read in any manga this year for sure. Mm, wow. Yeah, I, I can't wait to like get back on the We Never Learn eventually. I, I'm sad I couldn't like catch up to it before it ended. But yeah, I, I definitely need to get back on that. Mm-hmm. But a protagonist is only as good as their antagonist. Well, I don't know in the case if we never learned if that's the case, but there are a lot of great manga villains in 2022. Um, can I just can I just start this off by saying I uh, I don't know if you necessarily maybe you disagree. I don't know. I don't want to just assume. But like for me in particular, I think it has to go to Makima from Chainsaw Man. I think that has to be unanimous. Makima stands out as kind of like the most memorable, compelling, terrifying villain in manga, I think, this year. Out of any series in Shonen Jump, at least. Especially since, like, from the beginning, like, you always kind of felt like there's something off about her. But, like, she always makes you feel uneasy somehow, And, like, I think Fujimoto does a great job of playing the long game and, like, really building up kind of, like, just how manipulative and evil Makima really is. Like, I mean, look, it's it's like I said on the Shonen Jump retrospective, I think Makima, I think, is a better execution of, like, the Aizen character, personally speaking. Mm. That, that that's just my opinion anyway like sp- specifically the whole like makima specifically planned her entire plan essentially was to build up denji and then tear him down by giving him the things he needs and wants like like a job food shelter friends people he cares about just to like literally take that all away so that she could crush him and leave him empty enough for makima to be the only thing in his life like, if that doesn't make for, like, the greatest villain from this past year of manga, I don't know what does. Yeah. I mean, just the scene where she, you know, Denji is with her in her apartment and there's just, like, this tension where Denji is like, you know, I don't want to think anymore and I'll become your dog. And then she just commands Denji to open the door and immediately upon doing that, kills power. And then Ugh. just breaks Denji by revealing that every, like... He she knows what he he really did. He killed his own father. He like she totally just breaks down his psyche and what he had believed and, and takes away everything that he had loved. She literally like had been kind of nurturing him just so that she can utterly destroy him so that he would surrender himself to her willingly in order to break the contract he had with Puchita because he she couldn't control him otherwise because of that. 
and it's just so cruel. It's it's genuinely kind of fucked up, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I think even even if it's in retrospect, I also like the idea that the series leaves off at is that the reason why Makima sought control and sought to create the world that she wanted in which like everyone was kind of united in her their admiration or in obedience to her was that she really wanted to make connections with people, but found it impossible to do so because she could only create connections with people by controlling them. And so just that idea that reborn as Nayuda, now the control devil is going to potentially by being raised by Denji have a chance to have a genuine connection with another person that is not based on control, but based on true, genuine like love and compassion. I think that is also an interesting, compelling note to characterize a character too. And it adds some debt to her as well. But just real quick, my, my second choice was going to be Dobby from My Hero Academia because yeah, of everything another. you mentioned earlier. What with it being revealed that he is Toya and essentially is single-handedly responsible for tearing down Endeavor's entire reputation as a hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Dobby, damn, that was just such an amazing moment. But even before that, obviously, his fight with Hawks rages utterly wrecked him. Oh, yeah. nearly killed him before he was rescued by Tokuyami and stuff. But yeah, like Dobby was like gleefully enjoying destroying heroes in this arc, loving every minute of it. I'm interested to see what is going to happen with him next. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about you? I mean, honestly, those are my top two, too. I do have some <laughs> others I think were really interesting that I'd like to mention just briefly. Yeah, I sure. think, honestly, I don't usually like to double up on a series, but All for One, honestly, was because he had such powerful moments where he, you know, took control of the situation and just revealed the sheer depth of his, you know, malice and and, uh, depravity in both the main series and in Vigilantes, the fact that across two series, he could have moments where he just utterly caused incredible chaos and took agency away from characters, admired them in just the most desperate of situations, I think is, is makes him extremely stand out as a villain. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in Vigilantes, especially in the, in the recent chapters where he's like, in this flashback, he's talking about like this entire concept of villains in society and how it's all based on instability and that how he basically exploits that instability in people that cause them to become villains to draw them inside and encourage that chaos in society. And like how he like takes like normal people and just by overstimulating them, turns them into what society sees as villains. Like, even though they have no control, like, he has basically caused them to run amok in the way they they have. But, like, because they're causing so much chaos, like, the heroes can't stop to, to realize what's really going on and they have to respond with force. Like, just that sheer sense of cruelty from All for One. And again, completely stealing agency from Shigaraki. I mean, we knew it was an abusive, manipulative relationship, but, but truly taking him hostage at the end of the arc in the way that he has. Yeah, I mean, I think he's really 
cements himself as like uh, a truly, truly despicable, horrifying uh, villainous force. And one of the most memorable in Shonen Jump, I think. Yeah, for sure. Like, honestly, ever since that scene where uh, All Might goes to uh, goes to the prison that All for One is at, and like they just ha- they they have that giant conversation. Like, literally, ever since that moment in particular, I've like it's never left the back of my mind that like I have never not believed that All for One has uh like like you know that like. He seems too comfortable. Like he has something up his sleeve. Like he hasn't been beaten. Like I, I have never once like not thought that ever since. Uh, ever since that moment in particular. Absolutely. Other villains I'd like to highlight include Sukuna, who just had an incredible string of chapters where after being awakened, he just goes on a rampage, like killing both antagonists in the series as well. I mean, he mainly kills the antagonist, but he also, by unleashing his full power, kills, like, thousands of innocent civilians just casually, all to just, all to just take down one opponent. He just wraps up other innocent civilians in his domain, just casually, cruelly. And then he, like, when he switches back over to Itadori, like, he does it with a full knowledge, it's like, hey, brat, take this in, what just happened? And then... Just the reaction he has, because he's basically hostage the entire time inside his own body while Sukuna is in control. And so he, like, throws up once he is back to his senses with the knowledge of, like, what Sukuna has done, the lies he just took. And he's, like, throwing up. And he's, like, telling himself to die. Like, Itadori himself is like, die, just me die. Because it's just, he's racked with the guilt of, like, because he was not in control, because Sukuna had taken over so many lies were like just casually callously taken away and that was just so devastating just Sukuna's incredible cruelty but also what makes it so interesting is just he does extend at one point his regards like his respects to Jogo like in their fight after he has basically killed Jogo and he's in Jogo's mind space as he's like about to pass away and Joker's reflecting about how he couldn't really accomplish what he did. And he couldn't really avenge like his fallen comrades. And Takuna is just in his mind saying, hey, you know, of all the curses of I, of all the people I fought, you know, you were pretty strong. And he, you know, that just makes Jogo emotional and cry. But of course, Sukuna doesn't, you know, doesn't let that remain a sincere moment. Because when Jogo asks, like, what is this? When he's tearing up, like Sukuna like sneers and like beats me. I don't know what that is either. <laughs> So it's like his respect only goes so far, which just grows a show. Just yeah, how irredeemably cruel he is, even though he is capable of res- respecting some people that have proven themselves interesting or amusing to him. Uh, I gotta read Jujutsu Kaisen. I have to do it. <laughs> um, I just have two more I want to mention. Uh, one, Mahiro from Seraph of the End. Uh, mainly, honestly, for kind of the flashback chapter, we ju- have just gone for the end. But in general, like, she's an inter- she's been an entertaining test for a long time just because there's still this era of mystery behind her and her motivations that we're kind of getting into now. Because she is, like, kind of the person who has kind of set a lot of the conflict of Sarah for the end into motion. But, you know, she also... Like a lot of Sarah characters and kind of the reason that I feel like I'm more endeared to the series now that I 
was when I first started reading it. Like, everyone has, like, such a flippant, like, quippy personality. And, like, she's in a reception. Like, there's just a point where it's, like, a serious moment where she's, like, you know, just taking time to flirt with Gurren. And she's just making all these innuendos. And then she teases, like, you know, the demon they're working with before, like, kind of causing them to, like, kind of be suppressed again. And then, like, kind of mainly the flashback thing, like, her relationship with Shinoa is, like, really... It's abusive, but it's also interesting in the dynamic between them. Because both Shinoa and Mahiro, as part of the Haragi family, were, like, kind of being used as, like, lab rats... Their bodies were experimented with and were kind of manipulated, but Mahiro was kind of the prodigy and she was the one who was excelling and she was like kind of taking a lot of the burdens away from Shinua so she wouldn't have to suffer as much. And then in order to also help Shinua not be found as, as useful a guinea pig and suppress her own emotions and desires so that they aren't discovered and exploited. Like she like beats Shinua like really violently and horribly so that she will become numb to pain so that even when like the experiment with her like she won't lose control of her emotions and it's incredibly messed up Shino is also kind of an emotionally disturbed character even as a kid though so like even while she's being beaten by her sister she she kind of like very coolly and casually is like saying hey i know where you're going with this sis but what about you if you do this won't you be uh, more burdened but she's like saying no i'm gonna do this for you i don't i'm you know even though i fall in love even though i have these own desires of mine to have a normal life you know i'm gonna give that all away for you to do that and i'm gonna sacrifice myself and then she basically plunges the world into devastation by teaming up with the vampires and that's still left to be explored in as the flashback continues but like you know, she has set herself really in my mind as like kind of a very disturbing character and like how in her approach, but also like a fun character in her personality because she, again, she does such a very violent thing to her own sister out of love for her and a desire to protect her. And then she also has this flippant personality where she makes light of her own pain and situation. And it's just a very interesting set of quirks and characteristics for antagonists to have which makes it interesting and i feel kind of the same way a lot of characters here at the end is like like a lot of the antagonists are like exceptionally cruel but then like they have like these very quippy quirky personalities and casual jokes with each other. Like, there's this moment in Seraph this year where, like, Farad is asking Crowley, hey, remember how I taught you the true meaning of life? And Farad, and Crowley's like, what? When did you teach me that? Oh, don't you remember when I killed everyone you love and, and, and made you watch and totally broke you? And just, to, and like, the thing is Crowley reacts with just, like, a pout. When Ferret is telling, reminding him of all this, like he isn't like really taking it like that seriously, even though we see in the flashback, he was like ultimately super devastated and like screaming in agony. It's like now it's like he's just become so numb to Ferret's antics and just so friendly with him that now he's only like pout. He's like, man, he's like, he's not even like that upset. He's just like frowning. But that's just kind of the, the personality of Seraph characters that have kind of grown 
to find very amusing. Uh, but besides that, the last tag is I want to mention is Shuden Doji, just because I think she's in fantasy here, because I think she's a very creepy, effective antagonist. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to more conflicts between her and Yori. But she made like one hell of an introduction that was incredibly creepy, like with her, you know, kidnapping all those other girls, uh, like I bet Sue, who can, you know, who draw spirits to them. She had kidnapped a bunch of them and had like horribly kind of abused and manipulated their bodies and like yeah, yeah. twisted them up with the grotesque like uh, mound of hands or whatever. It's just really, really disturbing visuals. Uh, so she stands out as like a creepy, terrifying like antagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But why don't we move on to favorite manga chapters? Yeah, this is a big one. Mm-hmm. I can kind of go through mine pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So my first choice was uh, chapter 36 of Spy Family, uh, the chapter in which uh, Anya and Becky end up going to the mall to shop. At first for Becky to like help Anya pick out like a, a set of clothes that'll like capture Damien's eye because obviously she thinks that Anya and Damien have like some like kind of unrequited love when clearly Anya does not love Damien. <laughs> she she loves cartoons more than Damien, <laughs> uh, which, you know, th- I, I get that. Um, and, you know, I, I just like that chapter because eventually they just kind of get so lost in like their day hanging out together that like they just become even better friends. And it's it's, it's it's just a really nice chapter. Like, I like that Anya actually has a friend her age at school. And it's just it's just really nice. My second choice is a tie between two chapters that I could I, I really wanted to pick something that I thought was like the funniest chapter from the past year. And I don't know if they're like the funniest, but I really couldn't choose between Mashal and Robico on this one, right? Um, mm. uh, it's a tie for me between Chapter 7 of Mashal and Chapter 17 of Robico. Uh, chapter 7 of Mashal being basically when Mash has to is forced to participate in the like Quidditch-type game that like the school plays. And uh, <laughs> he... He, he, he basically, you know, uh, like with all the earlier chapters, because he doesn't have any magic, he has to use his brute force to get through all these, like, things that require magic. And I just I just love how, like, he launches himself from the ground with this broom and, like, kicks himself in the air furiously to make himself fly. <laughs> uh, and then immediately after that, like, throws, like, the ball as hard as he can through, like, the goal round and around and around. Uh, until he scores like the maximum amount of points he can winning the game. <laughs> I seriously, I thought was like one of the funniest chapters from that series this year. Um, and again, with Roboco chapter 17, that's basically the chapter where Roboco uh, and gang play in a volleyball match against each other. And Roboco does not know how to play volleyball until she learns how to play volleyball by reading all of Haikyuu. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, last one I really want to mention real quickly is uh, chapter 19 of Hard Boiled Cop and Dolphin. This is the chapter where Chaco breaks a cup and she like lies about it, but Orpheus catches on to it and like kind of plays along and is like, oh man, you know, liars go to jail. Uh, can you help me find this liar or whatever? <laughs> and he kind of like, he kind of plays along to like teach her a lesson. But she's, like, in too deep, so she basically keeps lying and lying until, like, her lies, like, literally manifest into, like, a creature that, like, destroys their home or whatever. Um, And, you know, it leads to a pretty, like, emotional, touching little bit where, like, 
you know, she finally admits to breaking the cup and Orpheus is just like, yeah, I know. And that catches her off guard. (laughs) Probably my favorite standalone chapter from that series in particular so far. But yeah, a a lot of good standalone chapters I really wanted to like put out there. But uh, I'm curious what your choices were. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of great individual chapters this year, but uh, there's just a couple that I'll go through. So first, you know, this may be a choice that's kind of unusual for what we usually go for in terms of these simulpub uh, chapters, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it is a singular chapter that did come out this year. So I'm going to start off by mentioning Minicon is Insexual, which I found to be a really compelling story where... You know, it features an asexual protagonist. It also features a girl, you know, trying to have a relationship with him. You know, they generally get along. They generally enjoy hanging out with each other. But it's just like insincere exploration of like them trying to explore a relationship. Even though like they like each other, they they really enjoy each other's company and doing activities with each other. There's just this one little barrier. There's just one little need of the female protagonist Mirai that she just wants to have a sense of physical intimacy that Mine-kun is just not comfortable with as someone who is being asexual and so there's just a sense of doubt that they can make the relationship work and you know they don't they, they don't want to break up like Mirai she proposes an ultimatum because she hopes that you know Mine won't take it but he does because he wants the best for her and feels that he's not going to be able to give her you know, what she wants in terms of physical intimacy. And Minikun is also feeling like he can't really ever be in a relationship because of the, you know, this lack of interest, lack of desire on his part to have that. But, you know, even as they break up, she encourages him that, you know, no, there's nothing wrong with you that's lacking, that she truly did fall in love with you and she thanks him for falling in love with her and her falling in love with him. And it's a sad breakup, but, you know, she is able to eventually find a new relationship, but still, like, her relationship with Minikun, like, lingers in her. It's it's not something she can forget. And even though we don't find this out in, like, the main pages, but, like, in kind of, like, an afterword kind of bonus illustration... Like, Minikun does eventually find someone who he can date and who and have a big and a happy relationship with. And also just reading this with the understanding that the author was working through their own feelings of being asexual and exploring how to have relationships and, you know, communicating with your partner about your needs, physical and emotional. Like, I just thought it was a really compelling, moving story. That I really appreciated. It is, uh, it, like you said, it is an unusual choice. Again, considering we do focus a lot on simul pubs, but I mean, like, I I think it counts, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And the next, I want to mention Haiku Chapter Three Eighty Seven. So this, I I definitely even though I wasn't able to reread the big match before you know, this podcast so I could really, you know, talk about that in detail. Like there is like one specific moment, one specific chapter in that that I that has stuck with me that I knew I just had to mention because just a perfect encapsulation of the themes of that final arc and its message in a way that was just really moving. And in this chapter, it's like 
one of the most incredible things is that it's a very late in the game flashback chapter for Kageyama, our deuteragonist of the series. Like we have like so late into the series, a flashback exploring how he got into volleyball and his relationship with his grandfather and how he encouraged him when he was young to pursue volleyball as a hobby and then something he was really into, nurturing that interest, but also contrasting that with his sister who was also in volleyball when she was younger but eventually gave that up because as she was entering middle school and she found out that it was kind of expected of her to cut her hair like she didn't want to do that and she has this moment where she asks her grandfather hey is that a dumb reason to give up on volleyball but her grandfather encourages him and saying no you know no one understands what's more important to you than you like you no one else gets to decide what's dumb or not like what's important to you is important to you and you should treasure that and uh, you know embrace that and that pulled through for her you know Kageyama's sister because eventually like that passion for hair that she has is meaningful because she grows up to be a hairstylist but in Kageyama specifically like his grandfather you know continues to encourage him and like you know he just loves the game and when he's a kid like he's holding back against other players because he just doesn't want the game to end easily and he because he wants you know, to keep it going so he can play longer. But his grandfather encourages him, hey, you know, don't hide your skill because, you know, if you get really, really good, you'll play more games. And if you get really good, someone even better is going to find you and will challenge you. And we just explore a relationship and the impact Kageyama's grandfather had on him as he grows as a volleyball player. He joins clubs throughout his school career all the way up till basically the beginning of the series entering high school and then we just climax with this moment where yeah that payoff is there of like you know he Kagama has found that person who's even better to challenge him to be a rival to him that he can enjoy playing with forever and ever in Hanata it's just such a beautiful culmination of both Kagema's character arc and his relationship with Hanata just encapsulated in just a single chapter and just the fact that the title is at the end of this chapter, the greatest opponent too. It's just so perfect. And Haikyuu did this a lot where it built up to the chapter title reveal at the end for, to have like truly maximum impact. And it was always so good, like pretty much each and every time. But again, I think this chapter really encapsulates a lot of what made the final arc, final match of Haikyuu so good in terms of this idea that there is nothing wasted in all the experiences you have like your interests and your passions may grow and change but everything is leading to something and is you know an important part of your journey in life and will come back to be useful to you and if you continue on the path that you're on and persevere on the path that you're on if you're truly passionate about something you will eventually you know find that satisfaction that you have been working towards and again i think that characterizes the entire arc and so many of the character resolutions we get in it in terms of the destinations so many different characters have in this in the story and that we discover and learn about in this match but I think there's one chapter about Kageyama and his growth as a volleyball player and his relationship with Hinata. And then all this background with his relationship with his grandfather and that mirrored with his, what the trajectory 
that his sister went on that differs from his own, but also led to her discovering what she was passing about. I think that's just, it, this chapter, one chapter just encapsulates all the themes of Haikyuu that makes it so special and so powerful in just such a satisfying way. So I had to mention that. And then in terms of other super satisfying payoffs, I got to mention Demon Slayer Chapter 203. Kind of the true climax, annoyment of like the entire exhausting conflict that the characters have gone through. Where Tanjiro, you know, everyone has kind of come together to try and bring Tanjiro, turn Demon by Muzan back to his senses. And we're seeing inside Tanjiro's mind as he's being interrogated by the Muzan remnants that are inside of him. And that are trying to convince him that everything is hopeless and worthless and he should just give in and give up on life but Tanjiro is reached out to and encouraged by all the friends everyone even the people who have passed and who have sacrificed their lives they're all reaching out to him and trying to bring him back up to the light even though Muzan is trying to drag him down trying to drag him down with him into the hatred and despair but Tanjiro just perseveres. He's just lifted up by everybody, all the connections he's made, all the people who's helped, and who tell him not to give back, to come back to him. And Muzan's words just fall on deaf ears as he's just lifted up. And he's just left alone and finally, like, left behind. And it's just so satisfying. Like, it, that is truly the end of the fight. It's truly the end of this long, arduous conflict and journey the characters have been on and they and after all this struggle after all the heartbreak finally Tanjiro Nezuko they have their happy ending where they're reunited and the characters you know can celebrate that Tanjiro is alive and well back to who he is and you know it's just it's just a catharsis that the conflict is truly over and yeah those are my favorites I think this year Hmm, a lot of good picks um I guess we should talk about our favorite manga series finales of 2020. Mm-hmm. Do you have any to start off with? or? Um, I have one, and it's this one might be kind of a cheat because it's not technically over. But like at the time of this recording, there is news that it is looks like it's going to be ending in the next issue of its magazine. And honestly, from from like catching up on the year's worth of chapters recently, I think I can safely call it, like, I think it's pretty much over. Like, I'm going to call it, I think my favorite manga series finale of this year was Ajin. Mm. I originally was thinking about putting Chainsaw Man in there, but... It's not technically over, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But uh, have you caught up on Ajin recently at all? Sadly, no. Oh, man. Okay, so... Ajin this year was kind of weird for me because, like, I literally hadn't read it in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is one of those things where, like, I still, I, I liked what I read, but, like, I think I'm looking forward to, like, when I can reread all of Ajin from the beginning, like, after it ends. And then maybe we could possibly do, like, another podcast on it, like, yeah. after, you know, after we spent so much time away from it, like, as another retrospective. But, like, yeah, so... I don't want to give too much away, but I do think the ending of Ajin does a really good job of putting an end to our long, arduous battle between uh, between Nagai and uh, and Sato. Uh, I think they have a very satisfying final conflict. 
and uh, one where uh, it really illustrates, I think, uh, what makes their kind of sort of rivalry really work and like why it's so like 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 the difference between them as people uh, essentially because basically the idea is that uh Sato sees everything as a game and he's just kind of looking for the next challenge right he's a thrill seeker whereas Nagai basically you know even though he's a demi-human and he's technically immortal he takes life especially his own very seriously and he like he he actually has value in his life and uh, whereas with Sato Again, he sees everything as a game. He sees he kind of sees life as very disp- uh, disposable and whatnot. And that, uh, you know, it, it's it, they're both like real polar opposites on how they see life and their own. And kind of the penultimate chapter is like a big focus of that, where basically Nagai is like, look, like I, I take my life seriously. Like life is not just a joke. Like you can't just see everything as a game, and yeah, I, I, I like I, I thought the way he took out Sato, while admittedly maybe like on the surface it seems a little anticlimactic, but at the same time, uh, I thought it was done very well. But yeah, again, technically it's not over yet, but like it's looking like it's going to end within a chapter or two. So I'm pretty okay with just calling it now. Interesting. I definitely got to get caught up before you end then, because it sounds like it's coming to quite a satisfying conclusion. Yeah, it's good. And and again, it's one of those things where, like, I think for, like, the past two or three years, I've just kind of let Ajin build up and just kind of read it yearly, because I know if I read it monthly, I'm, I'm not going to get a lot of satisfaction out of reading it month to month, uh, because not also not much really happens per chapter, you know? But uh, yeah, I'd say definitely when it ends, you should, you should catch up on it, because I think you would like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a lot of series ended in 2020. I think we discussed a lot of the big ones that ended on our jump retrospective, especially. But, you know, there were quite a few that stuck out to me. I don't want to dwell on them too much, but I, I will mention them that they were really satisfying. So Time Paradox, Ghost Rider, I had problems with, you know, the middle stretch of the series, but I think it came to a really, really satisfying and with a great message about creativity and creative passion and that you know even if the art that you create is just for a niche audience so long as someone enjoys it it is worth creating it's worth you pursuing it and even you know you don't succeed at like making art like your career or like you have your struggle or you know even if it takes you a long time to make the art that you want to make. Like in the case of Tepe, like he literally spends like uh, decades to create that manga to get through to Aino. Mm-hmm. But like, it's just a great message about con- if you are truly passionate about the art you make, if you truly have a message you want to express to someone and to speak to someone so long as that person, so long as someone truly enjoys it and resonates with it and it's meaningful to them, like is something worth pursuing, something worth creating. And just the most important thing is to enjoy making art, the art you make. Enjoy doing what you're doing. And I thought that was just such a great message. 
Obviously, I talked about it just before, but Haikyuu had a fantastic ending, not just with the final match, but just in the final chapter itself. Obviously, we get to check in on where various characters are at now, and they're all thriving in their respective careers. Some characters are volleyball, some are not. But again, they're all doing things that make them happy, that they're passionate about, and that we love. And then we get something that was kind of being built up for so long, like... Hinata and Kageyama to get on the Japan team for the Olympics, them working together on the Japanese Olympic volleyball team, along with the greatest hits of, you know, other Haikyuu characters all on the same team. And that is so satisfying, but it doesn't end there. And that's what makes it so great is that the final pages are a year later after the Olympics, Hinata and Kageyama on other sides of the net, on the court again, facing each other down as rivals, as competitors, each saying to each other, this time I'm going to win. Just that rivalry continuing, them continuing to strive the best to each other, to improve, strive for better and better heights, that competitive rivalry, pushing them forward, pushing their growth forward. Ah, it's just so, so satisfying. But... I think the one that touched me the most in terms of series finales this year was the ending of Blue Flag. And again, this is another ending that's kind of showing, hey, you know, the destination you have in life, you know, it's not necessarily what you'll expect to be in high school. And that's really true of where a lot of character relationships and how they turn out at the ending of Blue Flag. They're not necessarily what you would expect even from the chapter before, but it makes so much sense in terms of the growth of these characters and that's just how life is like you're just growing as a person maturing as a person understanding yourself and what you want and what you want to pursue in life but just the first person perspectives throughout that entire chapter and then ultimately building to reveal an understanding of whose perspective we're seeing and then the final scene of our central relationship our main two characters holding hands together, their inner relationship with each other, like after long last. And it's just, it's just so satisfying. It's just really moving and touching. They see the growth of that relationship and culmination throughout the thing. And I know that a lot of people weren't satisfied with that first person perspective because, you know, we, we wanted to see everyone's faces smiling and happy, I'm sure. You know, I know, I understand that for sure. But I think that the art, as an artistic decision, I thought it was super beautiful. And again, that, that page of them holding hands together is just so impactful, I think. So I, I thought I, it was just such a great sequence, a moment, and just this question of like who, you, again, bringing it back to that question at the beginning, who did you choose, your friend, your lover? And then just that unspoken answer that they've chosen both, like they don't have to choose because they are both to each other. Ah, it's just so, such a poignant ending. I truly love it a lot. I mean, Blue Fag, I think, is one of my favorite series, and it just came to such a beautiful conclusion this year. Mm, man, I can't wait to read Blue Flag once it's like all out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess now it's time to move on to our favorite new manga of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I'm just gonna get this out of the way. My my favorite new manga to come out of 2020 was on Dead Unluck. Full stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Like you know, I I think despite how uh rough the first couple of chapters are with a lot of the. Uh, unconsensual touching and everything. Mm. Um, like, 
this the series still managed to pull me in with like it's really really interesting power set that like i've never seen from another manga before like I, I i think like in general like i could go on and on about undead unluck but i think the thing that really like captured me about it is i think you know just in general i don't think i've ever seen a manga like this it's it's like one of the most original things I've read in a long time, and that's that's really saying something because you know, like Shonen Jump, especially like you know, like a lot of series share different like aspects and and stuff with each other. Some some stuff like Shonen Jump, uh, you know, a lot of the time, even even with a lot of stuff that seems new, still kind of follows like a formula that you expect almost, but. I don't know, just a, a Undead Unluck, I think, just has a lot going for it, especially when it comes to, like, the fact that it's literally building the world using its world building, and I've never seen world building in a story used so literally. Undead Unluck also just has, like, it's, like, I'm I'm kind of speechless, as you can tell. <laughs> like, there's, there's just so much to talk about with it and, like, how many big ideas it has and, like you know what it has to say about stuff like the world and death and it just i'm i'm, I'm kind of going all over the place but like i really do think this series has a lot going for it and man i i hope i hope we could do an episode on this uh someday yeah i am pleasantly ha- surprised not even yeah i am surprised i guess of the way undead and luck has truly evolved itself and created such an interesting world and such compelling characters and such cool powers and application of them for some really crazy and inventive and clever fights mm-hmm. uh, it is really evolved in a way that i you know early on i thought there was interesting potential in those powers but of course there were you know predatory elements that were you know, a turn off, but gladly those have, you know, diminished at this point and the series just has hit its stride into being something truly compelling. So yeah, it's, it's really, really great right now. Mm-hmm. In terms of like other, like it was really hard. I, I wanted to pick like a top three, but like, it was really hard for me to like pick another two because like, between Phantom Seer, you know, and stuff like uh, Mashal and Maguchan, which like were series that initially like I just thought were kind of okay, but I've like really grown attached to. If I if I really had to commit to like a top three, I would say from from like the top down, like Undone Unluck is definitely my number one. Phantom Seer is probably my number two. Uh, and then really number three could be like a toss up between Mashal or Maguchan. Like I, I like both about the same, but for like very different reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, like I, again, I, I really wasn't expecting to like the last two I mentioned like as much as I did, but they've really grown on me and I, I can't wait to like read more of them. Absolutely. Uh, but what about you? Yeah. I mean, like you just mentioned, there were a lot of really great titles this year. But to mention some that you haven't yet that, you know, honestly, I find really compelling. And honestly, I struggled with how I wanted to acknowledge these series because they aren't technically new manga, but they're for this year because they didn't start this year. But they were licensed this year and then made available to read this year. And they're new-ish because they, they started last year. So I just... I really want to acknowledge these. I didn't know if I should count these, but you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. 
I Want to Be Your Girl is one that I've just found so compelling in its exploration of its protagonist trying to figure out their own identities, how they want to be perceived and treated by the world, and also struggling, you know, whether they are confident with those identities in themselves and trying to work up their confidence to be who they are, to be the person they want to be. And then just the heartbreak of rejection that they experience and the struggle to be understood. Specifically in Akira's case, the recent chapters that have been translated have just been so heartbreaking with Akira. Just, you know, every dash that she has of like people thinking that people are respecting her identity and respecting her as a person are just demolished. And even, you know, even though Himi is trying to be supportive and she's trying to also, you know, be confident in her own self, like unknowingly by returning to wearing a girl's studio uniform, she has kind of encouraged more doubt and the sense of isolation and loneliness in Akira. And that just leads to like a, a short little fight between them where, you know, Akira is jealous that Hime has gotten kind of compliments and respect on her own girliness while Akira's girly, you know, Akira's identity as a girl is ignored by the same kind of people. And it's just, it's really tough feelings, but they feel so authentic and like the series is just so compelling and technically this manga has ended this year but manga uh mangamo is not caught up on it but i, I just wanted to in terms of like a manga i guess that was newly introduced that is kind of being released in a fashion of like weekly chapter releases you know it's not quite like a new manga in terms of being released this year but i, I wanted to acknowledge it as like one of my favorite newer manga and the same goes true for Loving Yamada, which is still ongoing. And I, Mangamo has gotten to chapters that were released this year, so like I can technically like count this. Or maybe I should have saved this one for favorite currently running. But uh, regardless, this was kind of a new licensed addition to Mangamo this year. But yeah, I mean, I just find the relationship in that series very compelling. And, you know, learning how to kind of accept heartbreak but also kind of grow past this kind of a need to kind of like you know hoard in your relationship in like past memories like being able to let go and move on in your life and then also learning to trust others open up but to others and you know f- realize that you can you know f- make connections with people even though you might be distrustful or wary to open up yourself up to them at first like i think the series explores a lot of great themes in its relationships and i find the characters very lovable and compelling and also you know i mentioned it before but it has some really funny moments like i love the chapter where runa is trying to hook uh yamada and akane up in like manga rom-com style like with lucky uh touching or like having uh akane like eat run while eating toast thinking that'll lead to like some meat cute interactions or something like that like it's just really funny so yeah i want to acknowledge that series and I also want to acknowledge Worlds in Hair and Britannia Lumiere, which is a series that truly started this year. But like that is like a really blast from the past kind of class of a style of, 
you know, fantasy uh, shoujo isekai that really feels, you know, like what you expect from kind of like an older series from the 90s. But that's kind of what makes it like really refreshing in a way to see kind of a modern take on that kind of story with a very compelling protagonist in Aerie and her, you know, her just sense of uh, justice and, you know, wanting to do what's right for other people, even though she like she's in a you know difficult situation, but she stands up for uh, the prince when prince and uh, like her pro- uh, protectors, like when they're being slandered and like telling off all these other nobles at the party, like you know they are just so much. They are more honorable and better people than you could ever hope to be, and then just leaving the party, like completely rejecting all forms of custom, and then also like refusing to give in, and like kind of take back what she had said when she is imprisoned and it's like no like kind of, I kind of believe in the people that I'm with and I'm not going to like take back what I say because I believe in what I said and I believe in them yeah I just find her a very compelling protagonist and I find the story very interesting I'm very like sad that the series is like kind of an un- indefinite hiatus uh, as the most recent chapter because of the author's health issues, but I really hope that it does resume because I'm really interested in seeing where the story is moving and where it's going because I had a lot of fun reading it. Yeah, those are those are some good picks. A lot of good manga came out this past year. Mm-hmm. All right, but I think it's time to get to some of our bigger categories, uh, starting off with our favorite currently ongoing manga of 2020. And uh, if it's okay with you, I think I'd like to go first on this one. Yeah. So listening to our last best of manga, I, I made like a very small, like, I don't know what you call it, like a small, like, joking, I jokingly made a prediction because, you know, Dr. Stone was my favorite currently running manga from last year. And uh, I, cur- I, like, I jokingly said, like, oh, we'll see if Chainsaw Man catches up to it or whatever. And uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Stone's been dethroned. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, I you know look, it's it's not currently running, but it, it is gonna ha- it it's gonna come back. Like I think Chainsaw Man should count. You know, as far as currently running stuff, like it's technically not over. So I feel pretty okay with considering Chainsaw Man to be my favorite currently running manga of 2020. Yeah. I, and I mean, like, look, I don't want to del- dwell on it too much. We've talked about Chainsaw Man so much. It's there's there's so much we could talk about. It has so much to offer. It's so good. Like when I read that first chapter, like I already really liked it, but I never thought it could be this good. I'm just I'm so shocked at like how much I love it and like how much it's really like I, I talked about Undead Unluck earlier and like how original I thought it was, but like man, like Chainsaw Man is also something I've never seen before. You know, like. There, there's literally nothing like it. Chainsaw Man ran a gamut of emotions. It could be juvenile and shitposty, <laughs> and it could be like really uh, contemplative and poignant, and so many extremes in between. It was such a wild ride. It is just so compelling, and an experience like none other. I would also agree. I think Chainsaw Man kind of untouchably was my favorite um maybe not untouchably because uh, i okay so like it definitely is up there as one of the best manga of the year i will oh, mention yeah, for sure 
Uh, do we have more to say on Chainsaw Man? I, I just wanted to say, I, I, I said it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before, but I do just want to acknowledge that uh, Fujimoto has said publicly that, like, basically Chainsaw Man is kind of a combination of different stuff like Jujutsu Kaisen and Dora Hidoro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, I could totally see that, but, like... I can I can kind of see where he's coming from, but honestly, like, even if it does have similar elements, it still makes up something that I've never seen before. And I also just want to mention real quickly, my runner-up was My Hero Academia. Like, like all throughout this year, Chainsaw Man and My Hero Academia for me were neck and neck because, look, Chainsaw Man, I think won out eventually because, again, it is, it it is just. It's just given me so much that like I never thought I wanted from a manga or a comic just in general. But My Hero Academia, uh, while I consider it a runner-up, was still th- th- that doesn't diminish its its quality at all because like you know My Hero Academia just had its Paramount War arc. You know, like that that's essentially what this is. Um, and again, it is an arc that I think is going to have significant fallout. You know, for p- probably the rest of the series, and I, you know, I know we've said it before, but like I know we're both really looking forward to like where the series can go from here. Also, like you know, when I was trying to pick my favorite manga moments, like I really wanted to put something from My Hero Academia in there, but it's like My Hero Academia had way too many good moments this year. <laughs> and I mean, like I, I think the one that I do that I will just mention is uh, I liked a lot of the stuff with Aizawa this year in particular, too. I Like, when I was looking through moments, like, I was reminded of, like, how when Aizawa is in the middle of battle and he's thinking, like, man, I have to stay alive in order to basically see my students grow, essentially, is what he was thinking. And then, basically, Bakugo and Deku come in to help save him at the last minute, and, you know, we're, we're shown all these, like, flashbacks of, like, Aizawa basically putting himself in harm's way and always protecting his students. Like, especially the scene where he's, like, at the press conference, like, trying to defend Bakugo, uh, while Bakugo in particular is like, now it's our turn to protect you. Like, that legit made me cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that was, like, such a good callback. Uh, like, like, in general, like, this entire year in My Hero Academia has been, like, like so many good callbacks like one after another like so like 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 a lot of stuff that's been building up really sees some significant payoff with this arc um and might possibly be the might possibly be the best arc of the series so far uh i'm willing to say but yeah that that's really all i have to say yeah mha was also extremely good this year and i am very excited to see the fallout of this past arc and where it's going to go next like I am truly excited for MHA and the series, like in a way that I hadn't been feeling for such a long time. But like the last couple months, and especially, have like really like energized my excitement for what is going on right now. Oh yeah, for sure. And yeah, I would totally agree with you on those. And the other I want to mention. First, I want to mention Twin Star Exorcist as one that I super enjoyed this year because this year was a lot of, you know, we're kind of got like this kind of soft re, it's not really a reset, but it's the series was kind of in this time skip kind of reintroducing us to characters and where they are now. And it's kind of a lot of seeing like how characters have grown. And it's just been a great year of like, there have been fights, 
with Kigare and stuff, but it's been a lot of character like development, closure stuff, you know, characters getting to relationships, mainly like Mayura and Shimon. Like Mayura has finally kind of made peace with, you know, letting Rokuro go. But then she's also looking for new relationships. And then she also finally realizes that she does have feelings for Shimon and they have feelings for each other. So they start, you know, kind of adorably and awkwardly kind of confess their feelings to each other. And it's, it's so, it's so wonderful and amusing. Uh, but they're also, you know, uh, Benio and Rokuro, their relationship, like they finally, you know, get married. Like, and the moment that they do, like the sequence of events that leads up to that is that, you know, Benio confesses to everyone that she is like the reincarnation of like the great yin. She awakens, you know, that basically means she's like part Kagare herself. And if, you know, she fully awakens here, she'll be full Kagare. Uh, and that'll happen if Rokuro awakens us the great yang. And like, you know, Rokuro is like struggling you know, in like a recent fight and then in the afternoon of that, like to not fully awaken because the spirit of the great Yang has kind of found him in Magano and then kind of uh, takes control of him for a bit. But then kind of the remnants of Yuto are in there, like kind of telling him what will happen and then kind of hoping and like to kind of take ownership up for himself. And basically by accepting him is kind of like a kind of a, like a, a remnant that'll allow Rokuro to like awaken like the full powers that would come as awakening as the great Yang, but not fully awaken. So he can still be himself and Benio can still be herself and they can still be together because if she were to awaken as a great Yang, of course she would have to be separated from Rokuro. She, she couldn't live in like the human world. She'd have to live in Magano. So that was a really satisfying moment of closure to like that conflict between Rokuro and Yuto, as well as kind of just this knowledge of Yuto kind of giving his blessings and his well wishes for his sister's happiness, you know, even after all the pain that, you know, he caused and like his ambitions. Like he did ultimately does still care for his sister and does still care for his former best friend. And there's that closure there. And then there's just that moment where Rokuro awakens and then he goes off to be by Benio's side because Benio has just confessed. And so a lot of the council are discussing what they want to do with Benio, like whether they should execute her or not. And like Rokuro arrives to like ask for everyone to support her, support him and her in their marriage. And as the twin star exorcist and their promise that they will uh, exercise the king of Kagari together and protect everyone. And then all, everyone, all their friends like stand by them. The people stand by them. And it's just a powerful moment of solidarity. And then of course the wedding happens. Such a great moment. And then there's like a cute moment afterwards where they're like, okay, are we, are we gonna go all the way and have sex? And then they just kind of chicken out of it and say, uh, no, maybe we should wait after till we exercise the King Kigari, even though they both realize, oh, wait, we, we aren't going to be intimate until after we do this thing that we don't know when it's going to happen. And so they're kind of like in a dull, in a daze phase after that, but then they go on a honeymoon and it's just so adorable and cute. And like, there's just a lot of lighthearted, really great stuff throughout this year's Transfer Exorcist until the last couple chapters where shit hits the fan because a group of exorcists return from Magano and mysteriously, despite being in Magano for a week, they, they're perfectly fine. Their bodies haven't been tainted or poisoned. Somehow they survive and they're totally fine. And obviously that's sus. 
And so people are debating, should they execute them or not? And, you know, people are making cases, no, we don't want to do that. Alice in particular is like, no, like I, I want to try and save R.I. Exorcist if I can. But this is all a long ploy to see like paranoia and suspicion so that when these guys escape, because they, they fear being that because the other exorcists mistrust them that they're going to be executed, they escape. And that causes a member of one of the families to send Tatara, who is one of like the chief exorcists, to go after them and assassinate them, basically. Like, it, that was all a long ploy by one of the series' main antagonists, Sakanushi, knowing that they would be suspicious of these exorcists they returned home fine he planted basically a curse that would activate like the moment they were killed the moment even one of them was killed like it would open a portal to Megano and allow all the Bostra to escape out and cause all this chaos and havoc and that's what happens like they kill one of these guys and these portals from Magana open up and all these Kagare and all the Bostra come in. They wreak havoc on the island. They kill so many innocent civilians. They destroy the headquarters of the Exorcist Association. And so all the shit is hit the fan. And now it's like, oh my God, this is like the most desperate, dire situation in the series yet. And just that entire ride of emotions to, of like just so many sweets and lovely like character moments and this lighthearted stuff and then all of this just being turned on a dime into just utter despair was just so memorable and it just really made this year twin stars stand out but uh i think my favorite favorite series though this year was jujutsu kaisen the shibuya incident has just been such a ride so many incredible character moments and payoffs and fights like, I think that of any series I read this year, I revisited Jujutsu Kaisen the most. I just got completely absorbed into it and I, like, revisited so many chapters and reread it and, like, really was thinking about it and theories of, like, where the story's going next. And especially with recent developments, I'm so excited for where this story has ended, where it's taken the characters and this station it is at now, and, like, what's ahead in the future. Because this is kind of like a huge turning point for the series. I think it's very apt to call this perhaps the Soul Society arc of Jujutsu Kaisen. And I think that this series is going to like just expand on to like an an even crazier situation. Because the status quo has been irrevocably like altered. Even though so many of the main antagonists that we have since the beginning of the series are gone now. Like the new... He really has been here all along. But now knowing his true identity... And then, like, the mystery of Arame and, like, how they plan to revive Sukuna and then just all these other things in the background. Like, I'm really excited for the future of Jujutsu Kaisen with the developments in it. Like, this is... I have been so, so enthralled and satisfied with the series this year. And I think it has truly been my favorite to read this year, for sure. Ah, stop making me want to read this. (laughs) Oh, man. Um... God, so much good manga. Yeah, I mean, we spent so long talking about it. <laughs> and we're, we're almost done, I promise. But before we get on to our last kind of category, uh, I, I do kind of want to go over uh, the rest of Gabby's uh, mentions here. Um, so as far as her favorite series goes, Gabby mentioned uh, Haikyuu, Spy Family, Blue Flag, and Blue Exorcist. Great choices. We talked about all those, and yeah, I agree. They're all pretty good choices. 
as far as her favorite characters go, uh, she mentioned uh, Mr. Hinata Shoyo, the main character of Haikyuu. Uh, I'm I'm assuming Shoyo got a lot of good, uh, yeah, a lot of good screen time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then let's see here. We mentioned uh, we mentioned fights and licenses. Uh, just going down here real quick. I guess in terms of moments. Uh, she mentions uh, Hinata being the strongest decoy, uh, Farmer Kita. That and was basic- a great moment. Great. The two-page spread. And basically all final two chapters of Haikyuu. Yeah, yeah. Gabby also mentioned that she'd be choosing scenes was so hard she'd put all of Haikyuu's chapters from this year as she could. And I don't uh, blame her. Like, Haikyuu had an incredible year with a lot of great moments. Uh, oh, here. Uh, she also mentions uh, Twilight meeting Donovan Desmond, which... Uh, mm-hmm. Most recent thing, yeah, but that was a really good confrontation. Yeah, I really like where, like, the whole... Like, I, I like this sort of implied, like, uh, sort of distance that, like, Damien has with his father. Like, I, I really I really hope we kind of see their family explored a bit more in uh, further chapters. I think there's some really cool stuff we could kind of uh, dive into that with there. And then uh, she also mentions uh, seeing who Toma ends up with in Blue Flag. Yeah. And Rin telling Yukio he's strong because he has him. Yeah. I mean, again, that fight, the relationship between the brothers, like, really satisfying emotional payoff there. Mm-hmm. All right. So here's here's our biggest one. It's time to talk about the manga that we promised to read and in some cases podcast about in 2021 yeah i'm pretty sure i failed at most of this <laughs> do, do you want me to go over what you said in uh in the last ep- uh, last best of manga episode sure i mean i have the list here but uh yeah well l- let me know if i miss anything um you did mention that uh because we brought up the fact that we wanted to do urusei yatsura like the year before but didn't get to and said we wanted to do it in 2020 which we did and you also mentioned that you wanted to do more love squad Oh, uh, well, those happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you did mention the start of your daily manga thread, which you were doing pretty good f- with for a while. Yeah, I, I mean, I did a fourth of the year with that thread, and, you know, hopefully I'm going to try it again this year, because, like, the goal of it was to work through the backlog and specifically kind of review copy books that we've been getting. And mm-hmm. so, you know, just... Uh, daily goal to both read and then write the reviews of them so yeah hope to keep at that i mean in terms of like if i you know did i read in total at least 365 volumes of manga last year yeah absolutely if you if i were actually to like have kept track of all that but uh in terms of actually following through with that tread and like the goal that i was hoping to i fell short of that Hmm, I wonder if I should keep track of how many volumes I read in a year. That'd be interesting. I, I couldn't tell you how much I read in one year. Uh, but I mean, look, like, it was also 2020. Like, I th- I don't think, I think people will give you some slack, honestly. Mm, yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned offhandedly that you wanted to read up on some authors for future episodes. Uh, you wanted to catch up on stuff like To Your Eternity and Wave and whatever else was on Manga Plus. So I did Wave Listen to Me. I'm caught up on that. Hey, there you uh, go. So I didn't manage to get up on, uh, caught up on To Your Attorney, but... Hey, me neither, and I really should. You know, there were a lot of Manga Plus series that were ongoing at this time last year, but have now since ended that I haven't managed to complete, like Moonland and 
uh, unit change that I wanted to get to, but just haven't. But in terms of stuff that is still ongoing on uh, Monk Plus, I'm caught up with still quite a lot. But I think the two big ones that I still need to get caught up on are Summertime Rendering and The Vertical World. Yeah, I need to catch up on The Vertical World, too. But uh, let's see. Uh, you mentioned you wanted to read everything you had planned to. Uh, I'm. I think that was uh, referring to like stuff that we either like scheduled yeah. or like you know requests that we still need to get to. Which we'll get to those in a second. Um, you mentioned that uh, w- when I goaded you into you know uh, picking stuff you were kind of excited to read about or you were the most interested in getting to. You did mention Yona of the Dawn which we didn't get to this year, but I think we're planning on definitely getting to this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did Chihaya Furu. Yeah. Uh, we did read that. That was good. Um, we did an episode on Our Dreams at Dusk, mm-hmm. and we also got to Dora Hidoro. Yeah. And uh, that was all that I kind of took note of, uh, unless I missed anything. Yeah. I mean, there were goals I did end up completing, so that's good. And to specifically talk about the authors I said I wanted to read up on, Yuotase, Morohage, Takako Shimura, Fumi Yoshinaka, I did not complete those goals, but I still intend to one day. Or I'm gonna, I'm not going to set that as a goal for this year, but I would like to read more of those authors' works because I've been interested in them for a long time. Yeah, that's more of a, like, you'll get to it when you get to it kind of thing, I'm sure. Yeah, that's fair. Um, All right, so what are we thinking for 2021? I mean, Yona and the Dawn, once again, like, I think it's been long overdue. Really, all these remaining fan-worded manga requests that we took back in 2019 i really just want to i'm pretty sure it was 2018 actually no it was 2019 it was the 2018 survey but it was for the year of 2019 what manga we're going to cover in 2019 and so you know we did not finish those in 2020 we're still working on them this year we still have quite a few series you know the non is the biggest one in terms of not just significance of popularity but also length so that is the one that, like, I really want to do. No, I mean, not just because, you know, I feel like we really should polish these off finally, but also because I generally do want to read Yona the Dawn finally. And so like, I would like to get to it this year. Can I just add on to that? Because um, this this kind of goes into, like, a little bit of my stuff as well. Not to end- totally interrupt you or anything, but, like, I think we should shoot for, because, like, it seems like what's happening is a lot of the stuff that we say we'll get to within a year, we get to, but we don't end up releasing until later anyway. So I think I think our listeners should expect us to record everything as far as our remaining requests go. But, like, if they happen to not be released until 2022, like, that's that's likely. Yeah, I don't mind that as much. I'm talking about just, like, reading it this year. I would like okay. to I'm I'm just I'm just saying we we at least intend to like record about all of our uh survey requests this year. So. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Um I think Yona the Dawn is really the biggest one in terms of things. I mean, I would like again to catch up on more simulpubs outside of Jump. I think Terrier Eternity is a big one. I think Talitz Nana is one I've been interested in a long time and after seeing Reactors the Having, I really want to read that. I want to read A Sign of Affection and Shangri-La Frontier. I'm thinking about reading that one too, actually. 
Yeah, so, I mean, there are quite a few that are available on Crunchyroll, quite a few that are on Mangamo. I'm thinking of keeping up with Pink Heart Jam, which maybe will cover the first chapter of on the show, or maybe you already have. I don't know. We'll talk about that. That's from Fudakia. Uh, yeah, you know, there's just... I think we're planning to do that Fudakia spotlight that is here, so I don't know which title I want to choose for that, but I think Yuki Damatsu is one that I've just heard so many things about, so maybe that'll be one of them. Mm, we're, we're definitely planning on picking at least one title per person. Yeah. And I guess the other, like, big, long uh, title that is, like, an obligation for the show that we I want to read and do this year, I guess, is Tokyo Revengers. Not just because it is something that was, like, is, like, you know, this is a fan request that uh, I want to do, but, like, this is also, you know, just a series I've heard a lot about and I want to, you know, see what it's all about. Yeah, I am looking forward to reading through that soon. But yeah, I guess is the, that's about it for you then, in particular? Yes, I think so. All right. Well, here, since I did you, go, go ahead and do me. Like, I want to I want to hear what you have written down for me. Oh, I didn't write down yours, I'm afraid. Oh, that's okay. I have it written down then. Uh, all right. Um, so if I, if I listen to the episode correctly, um, this is what I have written down. So I mentioned that I wanted to cover Hell's Paradise, Jigoku Raku, mm-hmm. uh, catch up on it and do a podcast for it uh, in 2020, which unfortunately didn't happen. Look, Hell's Paradise is ending, you know, like I, I keep up with the series. I didn't mention it a lot in my, this year just because I, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to like reread it, but it had a lot of great moments. A lot of great stuff happened in it. It's been really, really, really great. But Hell's Paradise, you know, with the place it is at now, I think it is coming to a conclusion for sure. So I, I would not be surprised in the next couple of months it ends Maybe we'll find a place for it this year, maybe not, but, you know, eventually we will cover it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, we'll, we'll cover it when it ends, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm fine with not committing to, like, when we'll cover it. Like, we'll, it's it's kind of, let's let's say, let's put that on the back burner, but we are going to come back to it, because I, I, really, I really do want to, like, finally catch up with it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, let's see, I I made the declaration that I wanted to finish Food Wars and podcast about it, and uh, we did podcast about Food yeah. Wars, and I did finish it, uh, but that is going to be an episode that, uh, I guess by the time this episode is out, should be out uh, within the next few weeks after this episode. Uh, it'll be out soon. Uh, I yeah. am probably currently working on editing those episodes. I mean, that's a, that's a big one because I re-listened to our original, our first Best of Manga podcast. And that was like, I think Food Wars, like from our very first Best of is when you said you'd want to catch up with and read yep. uh, since the beginning of this podcast. And sure finally, uh, we achieved that goal last year. Yep. It only took, it only took four years. <laughs> um, Whatever. Sometimes things take a long time. Um. But yes, those Food Wars podcasts will be coming out soon. All right, so I'm going to cut in here and say that, uh, unfortunately, those Food Wars podcasts are not coming out. Uh, just just, just going to rip the Band-Aid off of this one. Uh, it's totally my fault. Um, I guess just to go over it real quickly. Um, we did have those recorded. Uh, we recorded both the retrospective on Food Wars and even a Q&A special. Uh, a few weeks afterwards with some really good special guests. Uh, I won't say who they were just yet because uh, 
we, we, we might be able to have them back on. And the reason I say that is because, uh, so as it turned out, both podcasts had missing audio, um, you know, enough missing audio to the point where uh, we wouldn't really be able to, like, work around that, unfortunately. Um, and it just kind of, like, you know, also, we, we had been putting off these podcasts, admittedly, for way too long. So it just kind of got to the point where uh, right now uh, we're just kind of, we're, we're going to come back to Food Wars. Uh, but I think we are going to shelve that until we... Uh, you know, but basically until we work through the rest of our survey requests, which thankfully we should be able to record all of those uh, throughout the next uh, rest of the year here. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, there's probably a good chance that we'll have them all recorded this year. But, you know, it'll probably take until like early next year to actually get them released just because of, you know, how things kind of work on our end. But yeah, so in the future... Because, you know, unfortunately, Food Wars is not the only podcast that, like, we've lost audio for. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show or not, but, uh, you know, the first time uh, this happened, we recorded a Toriko podcast with uh, our good friend Maxi back in the day, which, uh, obviously, with our new stance on uh, Shiba Bukuro, as far as this podcast goes, uh, where I could say that we're not going to, like, re-record that anytime soon, uh, again, just because we don't feel... We don't feel right promoting Shibabukuro's works, uh, considering you know what's happened in the past and everything. That that's a whole other thing. Um, so that's not going to happen. But uh, we did record a Yu Yu Hakusho podcast. Um, I want to say over a year ago at this point. That unfortunately, uh, we also had lost audio for, and we were just never able to recover. Uh, and now the same thing has happened with both Food Wars podcasts. So uh, I think I could say for sure that a goal of ours for next year in particular in 2022 would be to get at least one of those podcasts re-recorded and put up, uh, if not both of them. Uh, obviously, anything can happen. And, you know, we, ha we have so many other uh, like things and series that we want to cover next year as well that we're going to probably mention here in a few minutes once we get back to the episode. But um, I, I, I think that's going to be a goal of ours once we basically get through our, uh, through our survey requests finally. Uh, I think those are going to be like the next big things we really focus on. Uh, again, if we don't get both of those recorded and edited next year, we'll, it, we want to get at least one of those next year. Um, th thankfully, uh, the guests that we had for our Food Wars discussion are, are all game to come back so far. You know, barring any real like, uh, you know, rescheduling or anything. But uh, so so far, everybody's game to come back, which is great. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say who just yet because I, I still want to keep those a surprise. But uh, re rest assured that like one of the biggest reasons I was really upset that we uh, that we now can't release our Food Wars podcast is because like we got some really good guests on, you know, people that we've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while. Um, but hopefully you'll get to hear them again when we like re-record these. So, so yeah, basically I just wanted to cu cut in here and like, you know, let you guys know that while we did record these, we unfortunately can't release these and like, aren't really able to again, because it, it, it ended up that we just had so much missing audio that like, we couldn't work around it and we're just going to have to, uh, shelve these for now and come back to them. But we, but we will come back to them and I want to like sincerely apologize for 
you know, uh, for putting these off for so long. Uh, that's, you know, that that's on us. Um, we, we've been having trouble kind of uh, scheduling a lot of our podcasts. Um, but we're going to try to be better about that in the future. Uh, we're going to try to, you know, not let this happen again. Um, you know, th- this is another one of those, uh, curses of the manga Mavericks podcast. Uh, one that doesn't happen as frequently, but again, frequently enough to where, um, you know, it's a bummer every time it happens, but also sometimes these things just happen and, you know, I don't, I don't want to beat ourselves up too much because, you know, again, we'll, we'll get to the, we'll get back to these eventually, um, but again, uh, like I said, I just wanted to rip the pandaid off of that. And uh, but but hey, you know what? Uh, l- look forward to the rest of the stuff coming up that we're going to be talking about uh, right now. Back to the show. Dora Hedora was one I said I wanted to cover, and we did cover that. And that episode should be out by the time this episode is out uh, that you're listening to right now. Um, I'm so I'm so glad we got to do Dora Hedora. And then uh, I think I mentioned because I I said I keep saying I wanted to catch up to more simul pubs, but like I I think I'm just gonna catch up. Like I think I said I was gonna catch up to them like basically when I can on my own time. Uh, and I mentioned I wanted to get into Jujutsu Kaisen. More on that in a little bit. Um, I obviously did not do that this year, and I feel really bad. Uh, I also meant, uh, mentioned I wanted to do cross manage, which we did this year, and I think it's easily one of our best podcasts from the last year. Yeah, it was great. Um, and then yeah, that basically goes into what I personally want to do for um the podcast over the next year. Um, so I definitely have some goals. Um, first off, like I mentioned, I do want to like record and release all of our survey requests by 2022 at the very latest. So I want to do that for sure. Um, we mentioned it in our Shonen Jump retrospective. Uh, so patrons got a sneak peek at uh, some of our plans. But I think I can safely say that we want to do an episode on Demon Slayer this year. It's it's too big to ignore. It's literally too big to ignore. Yeah. We ha- I need to get on reading it and we need to talk about it on the show sometime this year. Yeah, I think it's more than appropriate as we enter the show's, you know, fifth year that we talk about what was the very first jumpstart we ever discussed on this show. Oh, yeah. Like, the timing's too perfect, honestly. Um, In terms of jump stops uh, is basically what I'm calling our uh, series of podcasts covering canceled Shonen Jump series. Um, I really like what we did for CrossManage this past year. I think in terms of our Jump Stop podcast, just in general, I think from here on out, I want to aim to do at least two of those a year. That's kind of my goal. Like one every quarter, I guess. If, if I think that's what you would call it. Well, I don't think we're really doing that in terms of the schedule this year, but we are planning to do two Jump Stops this year. Well, in in, in, th- in theory, I mean, you know, like, because we, we, are, we are doing two this year, but I just mean like, you know. I mean, it'll be one every semester if you were to do it two a year and space it out between different sections of the year. Yeah, but point being, I do want to aim to cover at least two of those kinds of series uh, every year uh, moving forward because I do feel like we haven't really done enough of them and I do want to do more of them eventually. So uh, because I I really love doing those kinds of podcasts. Those are kind of my those are probably some of my favorite podcasts to do for this show. So Mm-hmm. I want to. I just want to do more of them, and we're going to start that off by finally covering Omagadoki Zoo and Barrage. Basically, we're going to have we're going to have our own uh, Kohei Horikoshi month. 
We're going to cover Omagadoki Zoo and Barrage, and then we're going to try to get to My Hero Academia Vigilantes finally, or at least I will. Um, and we might possibly do something for the Patreon also. I haven't really like worked that out yet, but we'll 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 see if we have time for that. But I I do want to dedicate a month to just talking about Kohei Horikoshi's stuff because look, if, if we're gonna do a Magadoki Zoo, we might as well do Barrage. Like I think that just makes sense. Yeah. And I think like the last big thing I really want to do, especially in light of certain unfortunate things is I really, 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 really want to do like a full Halloween month for the podcast. Like I've been really wanting to do like a full theme month where we like talk about different, like, you know, spooky horror type manga. And I, I don't want to say like what we're planning on covering. Cause that could change, you know, within the next like uh, 10 months or whatever. Um, but I I definitely have some stuff in mind that I want to do over the month of October and I like I just I I want to I want to do a full spooky month that's it's it's been it's been something I've been wanting to do ever since like we started the podcast and we just haven't really we wanted to do it in 2020 but that just didn't work out unfortunately um why is this in light of certain unfortunate things though well be- because uh unfortunately the the big Halloween episode we did do we kind of have to take down and re-edit so you know oh okay yeah especially after all that stuff happened like i really want to make up for it by doing like a full halloween theme month for on the podcast where we cover different horror thriller spooky stuff mm-hmm. uh but yeah that that, that that's kind of like one of the things i'm like really looking forward to the most because you know you know what like I, I like i like halloween i don't know if you could tell i like celebrating it and why not do it on the podcast but yeah that's that's pretty much what all I want to do. I, I really tried to like, I really tried to do my best to like temper my, you know, uh, my goals and like try not to be too super ambitious. Yeah, I think that's been the problem with uh, some of, I feel for me at least, that's been the problem is that I set my expectations too high and I just don't uh, follow through. Uh, yeah, but I, I think we're getting better about that with each and every year tempering our expectations just a little bit and you know try not to give ourselves too much work you know Mm -hmm. figuring out what's reasonable yeah um but yeah that's basically what we want to do for the podcast in 2021 and wow we're finally done (laughs) (laughs) oh my Um, god this is the longest one of these yet in terms of just purely talking about these best ofs and we tried to limit our choices down this time a little bit compared to last year in some categories i think next year we're gonna probably have to figure out how to produce it even further maybe back to just one each but you know it was still a lot of fun there was still a lot of great stuff to talk about in the world of manga and so i truly enjoyed this conversation i hope you enjoyed listening to it no yeah I, i enjoyed this too like we did go on for a while but i mean i still had fun and you know like this, the, the, these these episodes in particular you should expect to be of a certain length at this point yeah. um but yeah I, we're, we're always kind of working out like how best to consolidate you know these best of manga episodes in particular we're still kind of working at it but you know as, as long as you guys enjoyed it you know that, that's all we really care about honestly uh and so i think we should take a break and uh and when we come back we're gonna end the show yeah 2020 is almost over, guys. Just a little bit longer.
We hope you enjoyed our best of manga podcast this year. This was definitely one of our longer ones in terms of the time we actually spent talking about the best of manga categories. This is the longest one. So, yeah, I mean, previous episodes were longer only because that those episodes also included like an hour and a half of news. Oh, okay. And us yeah. talking about like uh, the podcast categories of like best intros or best thumbnails or whatever, which we didn't do this year because we had our 150th episode at retrospective and just did it there. But yeah, in terms of actually talking about the best among the categories, this was the longest time we have ever spent on them. And we had a lot to say about a lot of series. So we hope you enjoyed our thoughts. And hopefully you got some cool recommendations from us to check out of anything you missed in the last year that you were curious about. But of course, as much as we read and try to read, we can't be comprehensive on anything and everything. So we definitely want to, in our community shoutouts, recommend other best of retrospectives of last year in manga that also covers some things that we couldn't cover because we didn't get to yet. And there are quite a few really great coverages that I want to recommend. For some written out lists of stuff people enjoy, definitely check the Annie Gamers list and the Manga Bookshelf list. The Annie Gamers list are basically all in agreement of Love and Chainsaw Man, but the Oaks are really shout out Heavenly Delusion and Gleolia too, so those are definitely good wrecks. And the Manga Bookshelf list uh, from basically all six writers, they shout out a lot of different titles, but Rose of Resize is definitely like the common team between them, as well as Bayel Metamorphosis. And obviously you heard on the show that Rosa Resides was my favorite title as far as new releases last year. Bayel Metamorphosis is also extremely good. So those are also great wrecks to cover a lot of great stuff. And, you know, obviously read those sites in general for more great mock coverage. But also check out Sloan Female Otaku's video on her among recognitions of the newest manga that she liked in 2020 and also for podcasts that you know did big comprehensive coverage of like newer manga that came out in 2020 like i mean the most uh comprehensive is definitely you know g's uh, read right to left podcast and their podcasts like going over the top manga in 2020 and all the honorable mentions there are so many titles that they recommended and they covered a lot of stuff that i wanted to get to too that i'm definitely encouraged to get to after hearing them talk about it so definitely listen to that it's a lot of hours between that and the honorable mentions of like recommending manga but there are a lot of great titles that they recommend for more podcasts that kind of reflect on not just new manga that came out last year, but also manga they read on the show. You know, Manga Machinations, guys, shout out them. They shouted out, like, their favorite stuff they read last year. And also a shout out for that cut blooper from their Best of uh, segment where Seamus uh, ranted about, like, who the best podcaster of the year were and said that it was him and called us out for being hacked for having the literative podcast style <laughs> So shout out to that too. But yeah, it's a great retrospective. They recommend a lot of great stuff and a lot of manga that they read on the show last year that they really enjoyed. And similarly, Weekly Manga Recap, and they also covered a lot of series last year on their show. So they go over those again in their retrospective. Uh, but also they reflect on the year of manga they were reading in Shonen Jump 
plus Eden Zero and whatnot. And yeah, they just go over like what they taught about how a lot of the jump series they were reading last year were and how they feel about them. Ceremony is true for the Multiversity Manga Pod, their 2020 retrospective, which is precisely jump focused. So definitely check that out. For even more specific coverage, like for the best Yuri of 2020, both Yuri Mutter and Erika Onikazu, they both put out great lists of like their favorite Yuri manga and anime of the last year with some great recommendations. And similarly, in general, ANN's top anime of 2020 lists are pretty comprehensive. I definitely want to give a shout out to their best LGBTQ characters of 2020 list in particular, which was written by Rai Kaiser. And yeah, like there was a lot of great queer characters, queer representation in anime last year. It was a really good year for that. And they did a great list covering some of the characters that were real highlights that a joy to see in new anime last year. Now, moving on from specific best manga of the year of 2020 stuff, but still focusing on retrospectives, Tanami Fateful did like a big top 10 shows on Tanami retrospective towards the end of last year that I don't think I got a chance to shout out, but definitely give that a listen because they reflect on like what their favorite shows in Tanami have been throughout its history. And they are long podcasts between them, I think. Altogether, it's like six hours between the two halves, so they have a lot to talk about, and they cover a lot of like, some really memorable shows in Nami's history. Another tradition I always loved and look forward to at the end of the year are Team Four Stars DB Sembers, and last year's was their Top 12 Transformations, and it was a great list, a lot that I agreed with. Some placements definitely surprised me, like... I was surprised that certain transformations were ranked as high as they were, and pleasantly surprised in many cases, particularly Super Saiyan 4, which, man, Kieran's video on that in particular is just such a highlight. Just him reflecting on what Super Saiyan 4, like, really means to him, like, his history of, like, when he first discovered it and why he thinks he's so cool. Like, I really appreciated that. That was a great video. Really awesome. They really just let Kieran have the floor with that. So I appreciate that, especially as I've been recently going through GT again, and I definitely agree. It's Super Saiyan 4, pretty cool. But, yeah, great December list from Team Horror Star in general. And in addition to that, they did a retrospective of Dragon Ball in general and how they feel about the franchise as it is as of 2020, which I also thought was a good listen, like just them reflecting on their fandom, what Dragon Ball has meant to them and means to them, and their thoughts on the Moro arc and the direction of the series and Super. It is a very good listen. And speaking of more specific thoughts on the Moro arc, like Consensu did a big conversation on the moral arc that was also really good and really touched a lot of points of like highlights as well as some missteps but overall coming to consensus that it is probably the best arc supers done so far and that's something i'd agree with i really enjoyed it i mentioned parts of it on the show that i especially enjoyed in the best of categories particularly like vegeta's spirit fission technique but yeah i thought it did a lot of cool things for the franchise and finally, my last thing that I'll mention to just relate to what of the manga I talked on the show, like, I talked a lot about My Broken Marco and, like, how compelling and affecting a work it is in terms of, like, the heavy themes that it deals with. 
And last fall, there was a really great interview on ANN conducted by Lindsay Loveridge with translation assistant by Jimmy Keehan uh, with creator Wak Hirako about like the origins of how she created the story, like the emotions that fueled it, particularly reflecting on, you know, relationship with her mother and, you know, her history with dealing with physical and emotional abuse and how that was like you know, those experiences were captured and drawn into the story. And that, and hearing the interview, I mean, reading the interview and then learning, like, kind of the places where the emotions in the story came from, like, that just made me appreciate the series and the story just so all the more. So definitely just check out that interview and definitely check out my Broken Marco. Like I said, it's definitely one of my favorite manga of last year and definitely a book I highly recommend is but content warnings because it does deal with such heavy stuff. I will admit after hearing you talk about it during our uh, our main best of manga discussion uh I'm really thinking at some point we should just do an episode on it actually. Yeah, I think it's worth covering. There's a lot to dig into even though it's just a one volume work in terms of the themes it explores and also just the subject matter it explores. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely worth a conversation, but Overall, it's also just worth anyone to just check out and read. You know, again, provided you're comfortable with, like, how heavy the story is. Because, again, there are content warnings to be had with, like, kind of the darkness in it. That's fair. Um, It's definitely on my list. I do need to get to reading it. Mm -hmm. But that does it for my community shout-out recommendations. Like, just to add on to other podcasts, other lists that you can check out for even more manga recommendations that shout out stuff that we weren't able to cover on this episode, as well as just general, you know, retrospectives on things that we always enjoy and love and just, yeah, you know, share the love of all the media we love and all that good stuff. But I think that about does it for this best of manga retrospective, this quite lengthy and long retrospective. And I think we'll wind down into our wrap up. No. Yeah, for sure. Um, Thank you to everybody who listened to this episode And, uh, yeah, um, I guess as far as what's to come next, I mean, uh, I think we can say for sure that our Silver Spoon episode should be coming up after this episode. Indeed. Just in time, or a little bit after the 10th anniversary, though, if you've been listening on the Patreon, it was up on the Patreon a month early, but before the public release date. But yes, the Silver Spoon retrospective, we had Bugging Kelly back on the show after a good while to just... Share our love on Hiromu Arakawa's Slice of Life School Farm manga. And yeah, I really love that series. Definitely one of my favorites. We definitely cover a lot of what we love about the teams that it explores and the characters and their development. So definitely check that out. It's a great listen. And yeah, I definitely a series I'm glad we finally got around to covering. And we covered it at a good time. No, yeah, for sure. Uh, but we'll talk about Patreon stuff in a second. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at LumRomyasha on Twitter. As LumRomyasha already, please like Animation Revelation and this road is the LumRomyasha. That's where you can find me. You can read my reviews on on-com.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out. And I have written reviews for a lot of the titles that we talked about in the best of manga. Which is Printing Office. I've written reviews for every volume. My Broken Marker, I wrote a review for. Sadako at the End of the World, I wrote a review for. Rules of a Size, I wrote a review for basically everything I mentioned, I think, in my favorite manga new releases of the year list. I've written a review for, so you can check out the links to all that. 
in the show notes, I'm sure. And yeah, like just check out. We got a lot of reviews coming. And if you want like a preview, I guess, of what I would probably be talking about in the next, you know, end of the year best of manga, like just pay attention, follow my reviews. Because there's definitely a lot that we've been reading and a lot of reviews that we've been meaning and are going to get out. So look forward to more on those on there. But you can also find, you know, the related podcasts that I do on my own, like Manga Rates and Movies, where you mainly cover anime movies, as well as Lum Squad, the Eurasy Observer Focus podcast, where me and my good friend AC, we cover and explore the wacky, wonderful world of Mugoto Hakuhashi's Eurasy and we've been going through the manga, and we're just about caught up, and now we're going to finally get to tackling the movies, which I'm extremely excited for, so look forward to those podcasts, more of those dropping soon every month, and... If you enjoy the, the art I do for this show, all the podcasts I do, and the art I just make in general, you can follow my art and check it out on my Instagram, at Artworks. All right, definitely go follow all alum stuff in particular, but as for me, I'm Colting. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also produce and host a few other podcasts on the site as well that you can find links to over at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page on that blog dedicated to all the podcasts I'm doing at the moment. So again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. And uh, I guess basically, as for this podcast, you can find every episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast on all-comic.com. where we post every episode first, unless, once again, you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where we just mentioned if you sign up for the $2 tier in particular... Uh, you know, we mentioned our Silver Spoon episode is going to be the episode coming after this one. Uh, but if you were a $2 patron, uh, you could have listened to that a whole month ahead of time. It's just right there. Like, if you can't wait to listen to it, it's right there. It's only it's there for only $2. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just a general, uh, the $2 tier is basically for, you know, if we happen to have an episode of the show edited early and it's not really supposed to come out yet, uh, we'll put it up on the Patreon for you guys to listen to. You can also sign up for our $5 tier if you want, uh, you know, some more exclusive bonus content, uh, stuff that we don't upload on the main feed that's exclusive to our Patreon. Uh, we have about 20 plus hours of uh, just bonus content alone on our Patreon, uh, with a new bonus podcast being uploaded at the end of every month. Uh, right now, we are doing a uh, sort of a book club read through kind of thing. Uh, where every month my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcasting Network and I uh, go over two volumes of Masami Kuramata's Saint Seiya manga. We are closer and closer nearing the end of that series, uh, and we're, you know, looking forward to our next read-through. But, you know, uh, again, every month, you know, you can look forward to our bonus podcast just in general. You know, if we're if we're not doing a read-through, you know, we have all kinds of, like, uh, bonus reviews of of stuff that we've done in the past, you know, such as stuff like, uh, you know, that time I got reincarnated as Yamcha. We did a whole episode on that you, that you can only listen to on our Patreon, uh, as well as, uh, you know, my solo exchange diary that's up on there, my brother's husband, you know, all kinds of stuff uh, that you can listen to at our $5 tier at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, it's really the best way to support us and what we do here. Really helps us keep the lights on as far as the podcasts go. And so, yeah, again, patreon.com slash Uh Go ahead and sign up. We really appreciate it. 
But as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash alt.comic or on twitter.com slash altcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks where we upload different excerpts of the show as well as, uh, you know, exclusive some exclusive content every once in a while. Uh, again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Email us anything at mavericks at gmail.com. What would be some of your picks for some of our categories that we talked about on this episode here? What are some of your favorite currently running manga from the last year? Some of your favorite manga moments? You know, what what, what are you reading in general? What are you what do you want to uh, hear us talk about on the show? You know, email us anything about manga or the podcast or, you know, just whatever. Just send us an email. We'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms, um, but especially on Apple Podcasts in particular, uh, it really helps us when you leave a review and a rating on our show. It really helps us get to more listeners. And yeah, we, we really just appreciate the feedback in general. Uh, any feedback we get, we take very seriously, and we try to use that to uh, make our show even better. But that's really going to be about it for this episode. Uh, this has been episode 155 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. We will see you guys next time for episode 156. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.